Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You're rocking with the most awesome miss. The Carl Nelson Show. You're rocking with the most awesome miss. All right, let's go. And good morning, Wake Up Squad. Thanks for starting your day with us again. The founder of the Black Lawyers for Justice returns to our classroom later. Attorney Malik Shabazz will discuss the sentencing of the Mississippi police officers uh, convicted of brutalizing two black men. He'll also talk about reparations and the conflict between Gaza and Israel. But before Attorney Malik, New York activist Charles Barron will discuss the plight of the Shahil nations in Africa. Those are the former French colonies like Senegal, Mauritania, Mali... But to get us started, veteran journalist John Woodward is here. Good morning, John. Uh, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing, Mr. Nelson? We're doing excellent, John. You, you, yes, sir. We, 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 you've been, uh, you've been a, a writer, executive editor at some of the major publications across this country. Please tell us your story. Well, let's see. I'm, I'm a small-town boy from Benton Harbor, Michigan, population of about 15,000 right across the lake from Chicago, that's where I grew up, and I uh, went to high school there. My father was a family doctor there. He was from Kalamazoo, Michigan, just down the road. And um, I went from there to Harvard University. I majored in English literature there. And then I went to Chicago, and I was going to – I thought maybe I should study social sciences, so I, I enrolled at a program at the University of Chicago – but since I was used to reading novels, plays, and short stories and stuff, and I started reading these uh, very boring uh, sociology books, boring to me at least, and I thought I better get a job, and I got a job at Johnson Publishing Company, happened to be hiring then. I didn't have any journalism experience, but I got a job on Jet, and um, I got a, you know, they trained me, they gave me good Good basic training in journalism, writing for Jet, especially, um, you know, punchy, short articles, very good schooling. And then I switched over to Ebony and was an assistant editor and writer on Ebony then. This is in 1964 and 5. And uh, then the Vietnam War was, of course, popping at the time. And I also got married at the time. I was a, we had a deferment, but they took away the deferment, so I almost got drafted in the army. In which case, I would have been a Canadian today, I think. But uh, I avoided that, and I went back to grad school at Harvard, got my master's in English, and decided I didn't want to be a college professor because journalism was more interesting uh, than uh, being stuck in a musty library to me. And also because of the issues at the time, the civil rights movement, I'd been down in Mississippi in 1964, in the summer of 64, when 
when the civil rights workers were murdered down there, I was at Tougaloo um, doing some substitute teaching, even though I was just fresh out of college. But there was a program that we were running with Tougaloo. And um, saw Dr. King went right by me. He went to meet at the campus with the people after Scherner and uh, Cheney and Goodman's bodies were found in Mississippi. I went to the Mississippi Freedom, Freedom Democratic Party uh, convention there in Jackson with Fannie Lou Hamer giving speeches that would, uh, you know, raise every hair on your head. <laughs> A wonderful, tremendous, inspiring person. And um, then I went back to graduate school. I, uh, I'd had insight into the world in Vietnam and how corrupt, crooked, and uh, unlawful it was because a classmate of mine had been sent there by the U.S. government when I was in college to report on the uh, how much the people there wanted U.S. Uh, you know U.S. contrived or supported or defined freedom, and he said that he gathered that the Vietnamese that he saw in the villages didn't want the United States there whatsoever. And it was all just a sort of a bunch of hooey. The CIA had sent a student delegation there and they were trying to manufacture support and consent of the war uh, by sending students there. Anyway, I, I knew at that point and I then attended several teach-ins. I didn't know much about imperialism, French imperialism, and the decision of the United States to step in and take over for French imperialism after the Vietnamese had been oppressed and slaughtered by the French for many decades, and then the United States stepped in. And uh, so that gave me a different view on the world, and I, I felt a lot of anger and shame about our country's uh, behavior there, and I began to read more about the United States continuing uh, colonial relations with African countries. Of course, while I was in college, the African countries were beginning to win their independence after long colonial struggles, and that, that was something I also monitored and covered. So then I got, uh, I was at Ebony and Jet, but Ebony and Jet were not allowed at that time to cover the anti-war movement very closely or the Black Panthers. And I admired the Black Panthers at the time. They were just a little about my same age. And I wanted to be able to cover them. And I saw that Muhammad Speaks newspaper, which was there in Chicago, I could read all about these things in Muhammad Speaks that I wasn't allowed to write about at Ebony. So I, I made contacts with Muhammad Speaks, and I quit Ebony, and I switched over to Muhammad Speaks in 1968. I had left graduate school after two years and gone back to um, Chicago. And then uh, on Muhammad Speaks, I was there for four years. I was, I was executive editor for three years. And um, that was really more training in journalism that I received. I appreciated working there. I got to see a black organization that trained people to work on the presses, you know, they acquired the presses while I was there, the whole building, uh, um, printing the paper. When we first started, we were printed by other, um, you know, other printers, uh, the Learner, 
printing company. But we switched, and we were able to print the paper. The um, And I was there for four years. And then I um, switched over to the Chicago Sun-Times. For I can get into the details, but ultimately, I got fired at Muhammad Speaks because there was sort of like people on that paper and in the movement that didn't like certain ways I covered certain things, particularly the um, Bangladesh, uh, the Pakistan, Pakistan, East Pakistan rising against uh, Pakistan, which formed Bangladesh. Anyway, um, I felt I felt that the Pakistanis were in the wrong. The United States under Kissinger and Nixon were trying to tilt towards Pakistan, and they had some supporters in the nation were um, friendly towards that view. And um, anyway, they made some trumped-up charges against me, and I was ready to go at that time anyway. I very much appreciated my contact with Elijah Muhammad, and particularly with the rank-and-file members of the organization who um, I thought were just tremendous people um, devoted to educating themselves and hard work and uplift. And it was uh, uh, a lot of great spirit there working with the rank-and-file members of the Nation of Islam. And then, um, let's see, what did I do after that? I went to the Chicago Sun-Times, then I went to the New York Times. I worked there from 70. To 77, they brought in the computers into edu- into the newspaper business. I didn't like staring at the screen. We tried to fight. It was hurting my eyes, and I decided I would not want to stay working on these computer screens. They made the screens a lot better later on, it turns out, but I was having eye problems. I switched over to Ford Motor Company and worked on the Americana publication, Ford Times, from... Um, Let's see, 77 to 80. And then I switched over to the University of Michigan and I became executive editor of the um, alumni publication, Michigan Today, in about 81 or so. And I stayed there to 2004. And um, so I had the opportunity to head two publications. And in both cases, is rare in journalism. I could pretty much put in any news content that I wanted. And um, so I enjoyed a, you know, a, a long and unusual journalism career in that I had probably a little bit more um, freedom and authority than a lot of people who were in journalism have enjoyed. And um, then I went on. I, I write book reviews for the, I did for the Black Scholar and a magazine called Against the Current, and various others. I do some book reviewing and essay writing on occasion. And yeah. I'm also, you know what? I yeah. just yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just listening to your story because have you written a book about your your, your journey? Have you chronicled all the things that all the people that you've met along the way? No, you know I haven't. People, I I think about it. Even right now, um, I'm trying to compile and I'm in the process of compiling at least my Muhammad Speaks stories, which, um, you know, they're probably 
I don't know, well over a hundred. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to would like to compile them. And there's a professor here at the University of Michigan who's going to help me do that and make them available online. But then I've got my Ebony stories and my University of Michigan stories and my book reviews and other things of that sort that uh, would be a pretty interesting fat volume. I have written about my Muhammad Speaks experiences in in a piece called Messaging the Black Man. I think it's available online. I did it for a a book that compiled the... um, the, mem- the memories of various people in the United States who were active against the Vietnam War, and then maybe 30 or 40 years later, they began to report on on their publications and what their role was during the Vietnam War. So I'm in that book. That book is called Voices from the Underground, I think. But, but I did, so I right. did that. John, hold that thought yeah. right there, John. John, hold sure. that thought right there. We got to take our first break. We got to take our first break to check the traffic and weather. When we come back, though, I want you to talk about. Uh, you mentioned that Muhammad speaks. You got a running with uh, doing that, but uh, at Ebony, Ebony Jet, yeah. they, when they put some right. restrictions on you, but that's why you decided to go to Muhammad speaks. I want to find out why it's two okay. black publications. What was the difference? So I'll let you talk about oh, that when we get back. Fourteen minutes after the top of the hour, John Woodward's our guest, folks. He's a veteran journalist. You see, you heard his background just sitting there. You know, all the people that he's interviewed and met, just incredible. You know, the, the civil rights era. And he mentioned some, a lot of names there. We want to get into that as well. You got questions? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes after the traffic and weather together right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450 WOL information is power. Good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top there with veteran journalist John Woodward. You heard all this, the uh, publications he's worked for. I mean, I want to find out the transition between uh, working for Ebony Jet, the John Johnson's uh, corporation, and then switching over to Muhammad Speaks. You said the, the, your freedoms are sort of restricted as a journalist at Ebony Jet. Can you explain that first, John? Uh, yeah. Oh, let me get my name right. I think they might think it's W-O-O-D-F-O-R-D, Wood Ford. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I think you're saying Woodward. But anyway, just in case they look me up. But yes, um, I was fortunate. Well, first of all, yes, Ebony and Jet, of course, being a little bit more plugged into the general economy and depending upon advertising from a lot of major businesses, Uh, Like any publication in this country, that's a two-edged sword. I mean, the money's coming in, but on the other hand, there have been many occasions in which the advertisers, 
control or limit or influence what's being reported by putting pressure, economic pressure, on the publisher. And um, I would say that uh, that was happening at Ebony and Jet. They like to have their lines to the White House and other things cleared. For example, let me give an example that people don't know about. When I was there in um, 60... Well, uh, LBJ was going to run for president, maybe. And the Ebony polled its readers, and Bobby Kennedy won the readership poll, and we had a cover which was going to report that Bobby Kennedy had won the readership poll of Ebony readers. And the, the magazine was on the presses with that up on the ear, the little headline at the top. And the White House, LBJ's White House, found out about it through Simeon Booker, our Washington, D.C. correspondent. And then all of a sudden, the word came out that the entire issue would be taken off the presses, and that story would be removed. And that's what happened. They removed it. Just so, like that. Just like that. So here you had a, the readers have been told that they're – you know their their preference would be reflected somehow or another in a story, <laughs> but it wasn't. It disappeared, and in a way, that's kind of a nutshell what happens in our country in politics in general. And that we know that there are many instances, like in the healthcare and education, the the rank and file grassroots people want one thing, and the higher ups don't deliver, or alter it, or abandon it, and. Um, and that's the case, of course, I'd say, with this call for a ceasefire in um, the Gaza conflict right now. The public sensibly has wanted a piece of ceasefire very early on, once the initial uh, reprisal killings kind of balancing themselves out. And then, okay, let's go to the table and have a ceasefire because you know one side's got air power, the other side's got not much. So, but the slaughter continued, and despite the fact that polls show the public wanted a ceasefire, then you begin to see in the paper um, people equating a call for a ceasefire with a call for destruction of Israel, which, which of course it isn't. It's just that how many people are you going to kill before you decide you've it's kind of time to talk, and what is your objective anyway? Um, I'm getting off the subject right there. But, yeah, that's why I wanted to leave. No, 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 no I finish up on that because that, that's, yeah. that's what's happening today. And, and people in the business don't, don't understand that. But right. you and I who work in the business, we see that. Right. And we see that we, and the changes are reflecting the American people right now are not on the side of that slaughter that's going on in Israel. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed yeah, that out because sometimes we don't see it because right. you don't know how powerful the media is. Yes. Yeah. And we think our media is um, all free and independent, but it's kind of strange that that uh, the counter view doesn't get much uh, airing or it gets distorted. So that you'll hear people saying that those who are calling for a ceasefire are are against Jews or anti-Semitic, and they try to equate it and they try to condition the the public to see things their way. And of course, if you hear things over and over and over on every channel and every newspaper headline, after a while it has an effect on people who may not look into the reality, into the history, into the issues all that carefully. They see the headline or they hear the sound bite 
and they're being, uh, you know, their opinion is being molded. They're they're being. Uh, and, and John, let me jump in here and tell you it's where it's worse. In, uh, John, it's worse in the UK. Uh, they they're going after Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry, but they're essentially going after Meghan Markle, the newspaper. So you know, Harry sued them for for invasion of privacy, along with Elton John and some other top bigwigs in Britain. He won. He hasn't won the lawsuit, but he won a, a major decision in the courts. And I scanned, and, and the, we got we got quite a few listeners in the UK, and, and they told me just scan a few of our newspapers and see if they printed. None of them printed it. You know, mm. uh, yeah. um, Rupert Murdoch owns a bunch of them, and what they do, they'll print a story about uh, uh, um, Prince what is he, Edwards or whatever his name is, uh, Harry's brother's wife's, uh, some uh-huh. sort of glaring article of what she's wearing, what she's doing, and then a negative article about Meghan Markle. And I'm and I'm been trying. They they think it's because she's black, or some some they, some people think it's just because she's an American, she's not British. But it's it's just unflinching <laughs> the way they do it. And you're really like, wow, it's it's just so blatant, you know. Yeah, she, you're right. They never get you're any right. good press at all, at all. So you know, and, and people. People who don't understand how the media works, they'll go, okay, she must be a bad person. She's mm-hmm. the one who's causing all the problems with the royal family. And it's and it's not her. You know, mm-hmm. Harry's a grown man. He made the decision himself. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off yeah, track, well, but I just yeah, but right. want people to, to understand because you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to talk talk to someone who, who knows how the, how, the, uh, how, how the stuff is made, how the sausage is made. And maybe the ingredients. Right, because one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. You know, exactly. depending on which which side you're looking at. You know, but they but they they don't they don't tell the the American public that they and American public just consume it and and they 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 form opinions, and they don't know how they got to that that opinion. It was somebody, and that's and that's why it's so important for you who work in black media, me who work in black radio, to have these opinions that our people can understand. Right. They'll go and say, well, you don't have this white person. They'll come to me and say, why don't you have this white oh, Why would I want to do that? These guys, he's, he, that white person has all the white media at his expense. This is a black radio station for black thoughts, for black think, and that's, and that's what we're about. <laughs> not, we're not trying to entertain with white thoughts, you know, straight <laughs> up. I'll just tell you. Yeah, you know, well, well go ahead. Me. I'm sorry. I wish there were more of you around the, the country. Uh, we see a lot of the black stations getting squeezed out, same as the black. We had great black newspapers. Hardly any of them survives with the original owners these days. It's very hard to uh, keep independent, progressive, black, or even other organizations going in this country because the economic pressures brought to bear against people who who don't want to knuckle under and who will stand up and criticize um, the establishment they, uh, it makes it a big challenge to continue over generations to keep something going. Yeah, let me ask you this: though. Let's go to the civil rights era, because you 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 met a lot of great people in the civil rights era. Did you ever? Was there ever a time when the, the lines sort of blurred that you feel? Well, you know, I know what they're doing. I support what they're doing, and I'm going to do what they're doing, and still continue uh, reporting. Did did that ever? Right. Oh no, I always figured this. They would always say. What the, what the newspaper, the reporter, they tell the reporter, the reporter's not supposed to have any um, of his or her own feelings. However, the exactly. publishers, meanwhile, are donating to political parties, meeting with each other, deciding what wars or foreign policies are going to be, they're going to support, what politicians are going to support. 
And so, as far as I'm concerned, the reporter has the same freedoms when off-duty. I mean, you still have to write your stories as accurately and, and fair as you can, but the notion that you aren't going to have a, a point of view in your story, um, you know, that's kind of a little nutty, isn't it? Obviously, you can have points of views in your story, but you're going you're gonna to open it up. You One thing, you have faith that uh, reality and the truth are going to support you. So you need to print what's available to be printed. It's more a matter of not self-censoring when you cover stories. And so, no, I never had any conflict that way. I figured I had just much right to try to um, cover a story that I was interested in and just cover it fairly. I met um, one of the wonderful people I met. I'm just thinking of, recently I was thinking of once I knew who got killed. And uh, Sam Napier, who was the head of circulation for the Black Panther Party newspaper, was a wonderful person I met in Chicago. He got murdered by maybe it was FBI people inside the US organization in New York. And um, I was just thinking of him the other day, of the uh, losses that we've had, the people we've seen who've been who've been killed by uh, our own, not to mention people like Malcolm X and Dr. King and others we've seen fall by the wayside under violent uh, violent end. I'm sure you've run into the same situation. Right. Well, let me ask you this: because we come up on a break, uh, when you were covering, when you were at the uh, Muhammad speaks. And also your, your affiliation with the Black Panther Party newspaper, mm-hmm. and even with the Chicago Sun Times uh, back then, COINTELPRO did was that a factor or was this an after fact? Did you know back then that a lot of these, even when you were covering Dr. King, that the, the, the infiltrators were agents were working against uh, working against us? Yeah, um, particularly I was aware of it with the Panthers in Chicago. I could see. Uh, I attended several of their meetings. I was curious about them, and as I say, I was pretty much about the same age. And Fred Hampton was there. I met, you know, I knew Fred Hampton, and um, I felt, being a little older, I felt that some of the guys around him were um, kind of gangbangers, you might say, to put it easily and swiftly, that they wanted. they wanted uh, violent, uh, you know, and they also wanted to suppress dissent inside the little political education classes that he ran. And it turned out in these movies showed that the guys I thought were probably agents were agents. The, the movie that came out was about those guys that seemed fishy to me, but they took advantage of him. He was pretty young, only about 21 or so. And I think that... Um, uh, you know, uh, young people sometimes can get influenced by people who want to talk a lot of uh, uh, violence and, and and can be led astray or set up. And he, you know, so he got set up by these undercover agents, so that the uh, police and others would come in shooting. I was there that very morning that he was shot with my photographer, and we got the pictures showing the all the bullet holes were obviously going in. To the building, none of them coming out, and uh, that was uh, I can I can remember that cold January day very clearly when he was shot. 
Uh, I tell you what, hold that thought right there. We've got to take another quick break and check the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We come All back right. and let you tell us that story. Because we're getting some history right now with John Woodford, folks, who's a veteran journalist, as you mentioned. He worked for Ebony Jet, the Black Panther newspaper. He also worked for Muhammad Speaks, New York Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Michigan Today, a bunch of newspapers. So he's had to code switch a couple of times, I guess. We'll let him talk about that as well. But at 26 minutes away from the top, I'll be back in four minutes with your phone calls if you want to join this conversation right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9. And AM 1450, WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, Wake Up Squad. Thanks for joining us this morning. Our guest is uh, John Woodford. John's a veteran journalist, writer, executive editor for various newspapers. And he tells us on a journey here, an interesting journey as well, folks that he's met, the stories that he's covered. Before we go back to him, though, let me just uh, remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak to the founder of the Black Lawyers for Justice, that'll be Malik Shabazz, gave us an update on those uh, uh, police officers in Mississippi who were convicted or they confessed to the brutalization of two black men. Also, Attorney Malik, we're going to talk about the situation in the Middle East, of course, and also give us a reparations update. Before we go to Malik, though, New York City activist Charles Barron will be here to discuss the plight of the Sahel nations in Africa. Those are the former French colonies like Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. So, also, tomorrow is Friday, as you know. We give you another chance to free your mind. Join us for another Open Phone Friday program. You can start expressing yourself at 6 a.m. Eastern Time right here in Baltimore on 1010. WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, John, I'm going to let you finish your thought. Oh, okay. Well, I should say uh, my mother was born in Baltimore, so I've got a special interest in Baltimore. And my parents went to Howard University. My, my dad went there to medical school, my mother for undergraduate. So uh, I know a lot. I know the area is near and dear to me. And um, I wondered if you knew at Howard, the radio um, um, academic, um, Sonia Williams. Do you know her? I know her name. I've never oh, had yeah. a chance she, to meet her. She wrote, about, she wrote the biography of the man who preceded me at Muhammad Speaks as, as um, executive editor, Richard Durham. It's called Word Warrior. He, he was active in radio in the um, 40s. He wrote for the Lone Ranger and other things. And he wrote uh, black radio plays, some of the first... Yeah. Black radio plays, and even the first black TV soap opera, Richard Durham. Oh, wow. And any of your readers interested in the history of radio, I love radio, so I'm I'm really happy you kind of called me because I'm a radio head from way back. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I, I, I got to tell this because I have a framed copy of Muhammad Speaks, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, I pass it on to my son as he figure out what it is, you know, you, you yeah. have to break the case to, to really read the, the magazine, the, the newspaper. But I, I knew that one, at one time that, that, you know, especially after uh, the messenger died and the, the sort of it was in disarray, then Minister Farrakhan yeah. revived uh, the Nation of Islam and they changed the name of the newspaper. So I figured that would be a, as a journalist, that'd be a, a keeper for us. To, you know, you probably have some copies yourself. Oh, oh yeah, I've got a, yeah. In fact, uh, interesting you say that because when I was at Ebony and trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do, I'm feeling muzzled. Uh, I remember the brothers on the street held up a newspaper of Muhammad Speaks, and the headline was Disagreeable to Live With in Peace. Mm. Disagreeable to Live With in Peace. You know, um, Elijah Muhammad made up all the front page headlines. I didn't and, know that. 
Yeah, yeah, he made them all up. He, he, you know, he he had a genius for phrases. I mean, I'm sure you know the whatever one you fra- fra- uh, right. you framed. If it was one that he did when he was alive, there would be a very, very powerful brief phrase that he put in the headline. And uh, but yeah, disagreeable to live with in peace. I thought, man, that's this is just what I'm trying to express. This uh, country seems to be. Well, let me ask you this though, because you know Malcolm, uh, Malcolm was also played a, a, a role in the newspapers when he was yes, part he of did. the. Yeah, did mm-hmm. did he learn all of that? Because he he didn't go to J school. Did he learn all that from from the Messenger? Well, I think he was. Let's say that I think the Messenger inspired him and gave him free reign to do his stuff. I mean, the Elijah was writing a newspaper column that was published in the black newspapers in major parts of the country for a number of years. And uh, was, I think it was Mr. Muhammad Speaks. He was doing that, and then when, when Malcolm came out of prison and Elijah saw what a great speaker and thinker he was, and knowledge and how he had learned so much, self-educated himself in prison and brilliant person, uh, then he let him do a lot more on the paper. However, once they kind of went, um, once they had the strife between them, um, he didn't want, that's one reason we had many non-Muslims on the paper. I think Elijah didn't want another member inside the nation to build up uh competing kind of following and use the paper. He, I think he felt that Malcolm had used the paper to advance himself. So, you know, this this thing happens in organizations where the young, you know, the young challenger to the old guard um, comes to some sort of conflict, not necessarily physical, but it can be with the old guard. It was kind of that sort of situation. But I don't think myself that Elijah Muhammad ordered him to be killed because um, I have a, I think that he and Sister Clara Muhammad, I hear that they wept when they heard that he had been killed. So um, who knows who did it and how, but I don't think that he ordered that. But he did order him to be, you might say, excommunicated and silenced. And Malcolm refused to be silenced. And, you know, the rest is what happened uh, after that was unfortunate. Uh, I will say that the book on Sister Clara's life that's just out a second version called Mother of the Nation is something that your readers might want to take a look at. The Mother of the Nation, it's volume two, just out in 2023. Sister Clara, Mother of the Nation, Clara Evans Muhammad. Uh, she's a phenomenal person. You know, both she and Elijah never went past maybe junior high or so in Georgia, and um, they both were really brilliant people with uh, grit and mother wit, intelligence that carried them to build so many institutions, farms, factories, stores, uh, very inspirational people. And she was actually the one who followed Farag Muhammad first. Elijah was sort of down and out and drinking too much and passing out in the street, and she wanted to clean him up. And she had heard Farad Muhammad give a lecture in Detroit, 
And she thought, well, I might as well take him in there. Maybe that'll, uh, because he was saying, the, the, you know, the black person should rise up, work, study, advance. She thought maybe this would inspire him. So she took him in there. And that's how he got connected with uh, W.D. Farad Muhammad and then founded the uh, Nation of Islam. But she was the, you know, she was the germ. Also, when he was in prison for for refusing to go into the world, into the war, she was the one who went around to the prisons and fought the ban on having the Quran in prisons and fought to have prisoners to be able to read whatever they wanted. But she carried on that uh, that battle while raising, I can't remember, you know, five or six kids on her own and and uh, starting the schools, the Muslim schools. Uh, she She was active in that. So, yes, um, Mother of the Nation, Clara Evans Muhammad, I think anyone who gets that book by by uh, Sister Zakia Muhammad, the late Zakia Muhammad, they'll find it a tremendously uh, inspirational biography. Yeah. I, I want to go to the civil rights movement now, because mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, civil, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, some, some folks that right. we just uh, read about. Did you get a chance to meet them, interview them? Not Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, um, Mrs. Du Bois I interviewed. Uh, oh. Later on, I interviewed even Benazir Bhutto, who was the head of Pakistan, who also mm-hmm. another one who got murdered. And, uh, oh gosh, if I can remember. Well, well let me uh, ask you this, though, because the, 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 the thread that I see with you know what, what you do as a journalist, and, and then you have the COINTELPRO in full effect working. Uh, trying to disrupt what was going on. Mm-hmm. While, while you were plowing the field, did you understand there was somebody who was working against you? Uh, maybe well, you had agents? You know, that's a good question. I remember one time some guy showed up at the Muhammad Speaks plant when I was editor. It was about six people who were said to be Nebraska farmers. Uh, the delegation that they wanted to speak to Elijah Muhammad, and then they they asked if they could sit and interview me and some of the questions they asked it struck me that not maybe some of them were farmers because he did have he did have business with uh, farmers and other producers of food but some of the questions sounded like FBI questions where they were seemed I think they were press questions about whether there were people uh, who were rivaling him or something. You know, they were off-the-wall kind of questions. And I thought, well, they probably put in one or two FBI people into this gathering. And it was kind of routine back in the 60s, as you know, that people would say, well, we know there's some agents in the room. And everything that's been gathered historically, they know that the FBI had people attending almost every kind of civil rights uh, meeting and organization that they could. It was a whole cottage industry for the FBI with uh, informers all over the place. So, yeah, so we're, we sort of figured they were there, but no, no one, you know, you might say we knew what we were doing was right and honest and, and fair. And so if they want to cover it, they want to spy, let them spy. You assume there are going to be spies. I mean, all the governments have been spying on people for a Millennia, government spy on people, yeah. uh, people, uh, dissenters. They spy on each other. <laughs> and each other and on yeah. people in their own societies who they think might be some sort of threat to them in some kind of way, not a physical, but in just the way they think they might be. And so they spy on them, write up the reports, send them in, 
been going on forever. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Yeah, well, I want to go back to you. When, when you were out there beating the streets, getting for stories, uh, did you have did you have a, a lot of connections? You know, because in this business, it, it, as a journalist, you know, it's who you know. It's not. It's mostly uh, what yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I, I did. Um, but being executive editor, I went out every now and then, but not all the time because I had to be there for production. But I, I had great uh, correspondents: Joe Walker in New York and Lonnie Kashif in Washington, and uh, we had others in California. So, you know, we sent, say, like during the Vietnam War, uh, Joe Walker went to uh, interview the leaders of the uh, North Vietnamese of Viet Cong. Uh, we had other people went to Cuba and interview and sit down and interview the uh, Cuban leaders. And um, we interviewed uh, some representatives of African National Congress came to our office while Mandela was in prison and tell us all about uh, what was going on in South Africa. We, had, we were very interested in international news and they say Americans aren't interested in international news, but I can say that the black American readership of that era, they love to read international news. They just wanted to read international news that seemed uh, relevant to them and honest. And right. wasn't trying to Actually, well, John, hold up, hold up that, that thought right there. We could talk for hours on what's going on, because similar path, too, when I was yeah. growing up. People, people, our listenership in New York love to hear about international news. That's where we first heard about Nelson Mandela, uh, the, uh, all the fights in uh, free for Angola and all that kind of stuff. That's, right. that's where I heard all that stuff. Right. starting out. But anyway, we got to take another quick break, John. Okay. I'd love to sure. hear your stories. Six minutes away from the top of the hour family. Got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities and the news for our listeners in Baltimore. We'll be back in four minutes, though, right here with John Wood- Woodford, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV around FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. Minute after the top of the hour, we're chopping it up with uh, John Woodford. John is a veteran journalist. He's, he's worked for uh, Ebony Jet, Muhammad Speaks, uh, New York Times, uh, Chicago Sun-Times, Michigan Today. Those are just some of the papers he's worked for. Uh, but Charles Brown is on deck. We'll get to Charles in a moment. But let me ask you this question, though, John. All those different periodicals that you work for, did you have to do what, what we now call code switching? Did you have to change your persona to, to the, the, the newspaper that you're working for? Um, 
No, you know, interesting question though. Actually, when I was an undergraduate, I studied uh, under the professor who was credited with inventing the concept of code switching. His name was Einar Haugen. Uh, he was from Norway, and I had a course in the uh, the playwright the playwright Ibsen from him. He was a a wonderful professor, uh, very supportive and inspiring professor. But anyway, as a he was a linguist, linguistics was his field in addition in addition to literature. And um, so, if they, anyone interested in code switching can look him up and they'll see Einar Haugen H A U G E N. But no, I I think the code switching is something that people do quite naturally if they find themselves contacting different um, groups, you know, in-group, out-group type behavior. It's sort of a natural skill of people. I mean, it's the same thing as some people in Africa speak five or six languages, let alone code switching. They, uh, their sub- the circumstances of their lives puts them in touch with people who speak not even just different codes, you might say, within one language, but even different languages. But I don't do it anymore. I never had to do it any more than normal. In other words, let's say if guys are sitting around talking with each other and there are no women there, you know, guys may speak a certain way. And then if women come, they may switch the nature of the way they converse. That's code switching, isn't it? All right. But my uh, question is, let me put it a little uh, sharper, though. Okay. With the folks knowing that, that you work for Muhammad Speaks, you work for Ebony Jet, and then oh, you yeah. go work for the New York Times and, and Chicago right. Sun-Times, do they think, do they have a preconceived idea about the notion about who you are and what you are about oh, to do? That's a good, yeah, well, I don't, you know, I never worried about it because, as you know, journalism is a is a craft in a way. And so if you've sharpened up your craft and you can kind of demonstrate that you're capable within your craft, that kind of takes away a lot of that sort of a question. I mean, you know, they I thought that they weren't really all that curious about Muhammad Speaks at, at the New York Times. Um, so they never asked me. I mean, they knew I'd worked there, and they knew what was in it. But um, they, um, they um, didn't say much about it, and I didn't find that in speaking with people, I didn't, I didn't um, change the way I expressed my views and anything. I've always been someone who's pretty out there about what I think about something. So I'm not one to hold back uh, wherever I'm working. They're going to know what I think about it, and I'm ready to argue about it. And I'm kind of, you know... Um, I'm not looking for an argument, but if once the argument comes, I'm going to get into it, and then we're going to thrash it out with evidence and facts, and I'm going to I'm going to go for my point of view or be open if I can be persuaded that I'm wrong. So yeah, I, I never found um, that anyone, and I never found that something that I had to think about all that much, really, how I would behave. I mean, you're going to be, you want to be. Um, um, respectful and mannerly towards the people you work with in the same way. Um, you know, as I do, the editors could be kind of blunt and short sometimes in the way they're, the way they speak with people. And I could say I'm probably, it was probably that way too. 
Well, let me jump in because we're running out of time. Do yeah. they ever tell you, the editors, say, not at the black newspapers, yeah. say at the Times or the Sun-Times or Michigan Today, they ever tell you, uh, we're going to change that the byline or change your byline or change this or change your story? Do they ever try to coerce you into, you know? I, I Well, you know, I was at the New York Times, I was editing myself, so I was changing other people's stories to <laughs> try to improve them. Um, at Sun-Times, I did a lot of more writing and editing, but writing too. And no, I can't say really that, because um, I, I didn't stay at the Sun-Times beyond um, two years or so. I can't say that I ran into a problem like that. They, I've run into a problem more recently when I, um, I wrote a review of a book on Africa by a uh, white scholar, notable white scholar, and a leftist publication that I was writing it for wouldn't print it because they thought I was too hard on him. Mm. And um, because he was considered to be a progressive scholar, and I thought that I thought that his book on Africa was really uh, uh, not not really beneficial to African independence. I thought it kind of was more of a uh, neo-colonial kind of advice to the Africans. Anyway, I was pretty hard on it, and um, they didn't they didn't publish it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. You stood your point. Stay on yeah. the facts as a, as a good journalist, John. We're gonna let you go, but we're gonna continue well, this discussion later on down down the road because we 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 just we just talked about your work at the Muhammad Speaks and with the Nation of Islam, but also I want to get into the next time we have a conversation about the civil rights era, which you covered as well. Also Vietnam, because you know as a baby boomer, some people don't understand the difference now between joining the military back then and and, and what they do today. And they look right. at you as scans and you tell them, Nah, I'm not going. I'm not going to Vietnam. You know, we, luckily when when it came for me, they, they had the lottery system. So and, oh, and good I, for you. <laughs> yeah, and I drew a high number, but I was on your yeah. mind, thought of mine too. You know, I wasn't going. I was with Muhammad yeah. Ali. Yeah, yeah. But, and some people I'm don't understand going. that. You know, that's what I'm saying. Younger people don't understand that. They they, they no. think you, you know. So we'll, we'll get into all of that stuff the next time Great. around. But listen, because we got to talk to uh, Charles Barron. Uh, how can folks reach you? Uh, nice <laughs> to be you. I wish I could hear you talking about. Uh, Sahel area in Africa because well, just keep listening. Of- yeah, Charles Charles Brown is going to talk about that. Okay, but, I'll, try, I'll I'll get on and listen. Yeah, just go on on, on WOL and listen because we're having some issues with WOLB. But uh, just go okay. on WOL and listen. But okay. uh, John, how can folks follow you? Because you have a fascinating fascinating history in journalism. How can folks follow you? Oh, you on gosh. social media? I don't do it that much. Although I, I am part of a group called. We have a group called The Last Negroes at Harvard, and Kent Garrett, who is a black uh, TV man out of New York, he's now in upstate New York, and he's on WIOX, um, a public TV, public radio. There's public radio. I go on there a lot, and and we have a, a session every week that we talk about talk about things, and it's online through podcasts. Okay. Um, it's called, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, because we, we got to run. I'll tell you what, we, we'll have you back next time, we, and then we'll get into the civil rights era, you know, that, that you covered, Dr. King, the, the, the marches, and, uh, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, all of those stories that you covered. Yeah, we want to hear more about that. So, John, thank you for sharing your information with us this morning. 
thank you very much for right. letting me. That's John Woodford, family's a, a, a veteran journalist. He's got a lot of stories he's got to tell us. But now let's turn our attention to New York City. And Charles Barron is with us this morning. Good morning, Charles. Is Charles there? Is Charles uh, got yes. your phone on mute? Oh, there you are. Good morning, sir. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. It's an honor to be on with you, as always. It's an, it's an honor to have you on because you're going to tell us about the, the plight of the Shahil nations in Africa. First of all, can you define those nations for our, for our family? Yes, you know, the Sahel region of Africa, it goes coast to coast from west to east uh, Africa, and it's one of the richest. It's right below the Sahara Desert and right above the savannas, the southern savannas in Africa. So it's right in the middle across there. It stretches across uh, countries like Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger, Chad, and it goes all the way uh, across to the east. It is one of the richest regions in the world, particularly with uranium and gold, but it has silver, cobalt. It has everything that you can think of. And the uranium from Niger one of the uh, Sahel, Sahel countries, it lights up over a third of Europe, and it supplies the light for Europe, yet they cannot, can't turn their lights on in Niger, in Africa, because the French exploit them to the point where they've taken the uranium out for themselves, and the Africans that are struggling to have electricity and uh, and abject poverty, and the gold is taken out. You know, the uh, paradox of Africa is that it is the richest continent in the world, uh, supplying the world with uh, essential minerals and elements, gold, cobalt, uh, uranium, um, bauxite, you name it. Everybody's getting rich off of Africa, but Africans. So the paradox is that it is the richest country in the world with the poorest people in the world. Well, recently, there have been some coup d'etats. You know, there are different ways of changing governments, and sometimes coup d'etats, military hunters that take over governments. It could be a negative pro-Western thing that happens often with coup d'etats because, you know, under Barack Obama and prior presidents, they have... AFRICOM, a lot of military bases in Africa, not humanitarian aid, but military bases to exploit Africa. So these uh, bases usually are there to allow for uh, multinational corporations to come in and exploit. So just recently in Niger, not Nigeria, which is next to it, but Niger, N-I-G-E-R, they had a military coup that throughout the puppet government of the French and the United States. Right now, Africa is suffering from neo-colonialism. The new way to colonize is to put black faces in high places and still be dominated the economy and the land and the minerals and the vegetation, the agriculture, all of that still goes to the oppressor from Europe or from the West or even from China or Russia. You know, Marcus Garvey said Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. So right now there's a lot of 
potential revolutionary action happening in the Sahel region. Mali overthrew its government. I tell you what, hold, hold that thought right there, Charles. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, tell us about the revolution. And you mentioned that the Chinese are getting involved, and I also heard the Saudis are now. They had a meeting in Riyadh right. with a lot of the uh, African leaders, and they're going to start going into Africa. But I'll let you, I know you, are here, you know all that information. I hope you can share it with our audience. 14 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, New York activist, Charles Barron. Folks, you want to join this discussion, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour, I guess Charles Barron is an activist out of New York City, former New York City lawmaker. Now he's turning attention to what's going on on the continent. We're discussing the, the Sahel nations in Africa, and he mentioned, he told us the nations. And now there seems to be an uprising, or we call it an uprising, but a changing of attitude for some of the young people in those nations. So, Charles, I'm going to let you finish your thought. Yeah, the young people in the Sahel nations, and that's Mali, of Burkina Faso and Niger in particular, but it stretches all the way to Chad. Congo is a part of it too, because it's in the Central African region, right below the Sahara Desert. But we as Africans born in America and brought here in America, and as Africans dispersed all over the world, South America, the continent, um, the, I mean, the Caribbean and North America, everywhere you see where African people were dispersed, if we are to be free, and this is why the Sahel region and activity now is so important. If we are to be free as an African people on the continent and in the diaspora, we have to liberate Africa, unify Africa, in my opinion, under socialism, or as Kwame Nkrumah said, the great leader of Ghana, under scientific socialism. That is the goal that so many African leaders had. You remember in the 60s where there was the African independence movement, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, he rose up and he is one of the greatest intellectuals and activists in Africa the world has ever known. I mean, he's right up there intellectually uh, with those who proclaim Marx and proclaim Mao Tse-Sung and all these others who are intellectuals who've taken over nations, and particularly Mao and others. But Kwame Nkrumah is the father of the call for the United States of Africa. Well, he rose up and became the president of Ghana. Patrice Lumumba, another revolutionary leader, was duly elected to the country of uh, the Congo, and they took him out, backed by the USA's um, CIA, they took out Patrice Lumumba. He was only in for nine, 11 months, and they took him out through military uprisings and hunters using our own people to kill him. They killed him and, and, and put his body in acid, and the only thing left was his teeth. And Kwame Nkrumah, they had a coup d'etat, and they took him out, too. He's a negative coup d'etat, Western coup d'etat, military rising up, took him out. And uh, to show you how united we can be, Ahmed Seiko Tore, who was the president, revolutionary president of the revolutionary government of Guinea, said to Kwame Nkrumah, come on to Guinea. You can be co-president with me. And the same thing, you know, Julius Nyerere, who was a revolutionary leader of Tanzania and 
so many. Algeria, you know, the Battle of Algiers. Africa was liberating itself under socialism. And then came the counter-revolutionary forces of the West, and they took out all these great leaders. So that is extending to this day. Right now, most African countries are being uh, led by neo-colonial black puppets that were put in place by France and, and America and other European countries. So the black faces in high places, the neo-colonialism, the, the stage that we're in now, Kwame Nkrumah had a great book said, Neo-Colonialism, the last stage of imperialism. It's the, when they put black faces in high places. The same thing that's happening in a domestic kind of way in uh, America, where we have all these black elected officials in high places, but it's really white power and black face. So in the Sahel region, we have to watch that as we study and support uh, Palestine, and I'll get into that in a minute. Don't forget Africa. Their babies dying in Africa. Their babies starving in Africa. There are hundreds of thousands of, of millions of people dying in Africa. And these revolutions are coming to Africa, and particularly in Mali, um, Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso, they have such a powerful government that they rose up and said, as Mali said and Niger said, France out of Africa. Get the hell out of Africa. We are not want, you're not going to exploit us anymore. So that same uranium that was being exported to Europe now, the, the military junta in Niger said, halt. You can't take any more out. Matter of fact, you get out, France. And so that's happening in Africa. And Burkina Faso, same thing. They're continuing the great revolutionary social programs and movements of Thomas Sankara, who was a revolutionary leader who was assassinated and taken out of government by his own buddy, his own partner that rose up together during the revolution in Burkina Faso. As a matter of fact, Barack Obama hosted him, the sellout trader, uh, in the White House, and so did Bush and other presidents. So we got to keep an eye on Africa to see what's happening. And one of the deepest things that's happening in Africa is the BRICS conference in South Africa. BRICS stands for um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The BRICS conference that occurred in South Africa was those countries, and now 33 more countries want to join BRICS. And what BRICS is saying, no more IMF, the International Monetary Fund, no more World Bank, no more uh, World Trade Organization. These were all international agencies that were put in place by Europe and America. In 1942, after the World War, uh, imperialist War II, uh, America emerged as the superpower. And America then set up this organization when they had a conference called the uh, Brentwood Conference right here in America uh, at the Brentwood Conference. And in in America, they set up the IMF, the International Party, they set up the World Bank, and what of the 44 countries there, Russia was the only one to say, I'm not getting down with that because the IMF and the World Bank is like an international Wall Street. And 
They were in New Hampshire when they had this conference, and Russia pulled away in 42. So in 46, they set up what? NATO, North American uh, uh, Trade, trade, or, trade uh, Organization. Um, those were European countries that had colonized Africa, and they were put in place to stop Russia. This is at the bottom of the Ukrainian war when Russia said, you're not coming too close to me because you're trying to make Ukraine, which had a Russian government in 2014, a part of, you know, the um, NATO. And NATO was responsible for killing Muammar Gaddafi, along with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So this revolution that's occurring now in Africa, we hope it's a revolution. It has a lot of anti-Western rhetoric, and it's uh, talking about France out of Africa and talking about the United States, who has a drone base in Niger, wants them out of Africa. And so we should be on top of that and teach our children about it. The activists in America should be focused on the liberation of Africa. All right, hold that thought right there. 29 minutes after the top there. I've got some questions for you. you got tweet and also um, online. Let's go with line two. Norman's in Toronto, Canada, has a question for you. Good morning, Norman. Uh, greetings. How are both of you uh, brothers doing? Uh, Charles Barrett, I mean, Brother Comrade Charles, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, Algeria refused to allow the uh, French to fly over over their territory to, you know, uh, to help, uh, uh, you know, the the colon the uh, puppets in in in, in, in Niger. Uh, could you talk about, you know, the role that Algeria has has played in, you know, the liberation of, of Africa and, and helping black people from the Western Hemisphere? Because they had a, uh, an embassy there with a, where the Black Panthers had a, uh, uh, you know, a, a place where they could work. And uh, uh, I think it was a Boumediene, uh, uh, I'm going to say this and I get off the phone, Boumediene who took over after Ben Bella. When Shombe, the puppet from the Congo, was trying to get out of the Congo, he had to stop in Algeria, and they put him in prison. And he, fortunately or unfortunately, he never came out of the prison. But he, uh, I think Malcolm X referred to Moore Shombe as the, quote, the worst African that ever lived. Uh, could you talk about that? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Thanks, yeah, absolutely. I thank you so much for bringing up Algeria because the Battle of Algiers, I was in the Black Panther Party, and that was one of the prerequisite films that you had to watch, the Battle of Algiers. And when Bambela 
and then rose up against the French colonialists, the French imperialists in Algeria. It was a populist revolution. You see, a lot of the revolutions that were taking place then were populist revolutions. They weren't military juntas uh, taking over. They were people that were using guerrilla warfare, armed struggle, and had the masses involved in the revolution, where these ones uh, we have to really keep an eye on because they're mostly military juntas and coup d'etats. But yes, Mambella and his, and his predecessor was very, very supportive of the Black Panther Party. I know we had uh, Elders Cleaver, and when he left America, he went over to Algiers, and there was an international headquarters of the Black Panther Party set up in Algiers. And, you know, it was interesting at that time, brother, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was a young man, 18, 19, and everybody that I admired as revolutionary, America hated, and everybody America admired as international leaders, I hated and I fought against. So when it was in North Korea, Kim Il-sung, Black Panther Party said he was a revolutionary. When it was in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh, a revolutionary. We supported Ho Chi Minh. And of course, in Cuba, Fidel Castro and Ernesto Che Guevara, we supported you know them. In Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini took over from the Shah of Iran. But look at the contradictions and the hypocrisy of America. They supported the Shah of Iran, a murderer. They supported the in Nicaragua, Samosa, a murderer. We supported the Sandinistas. In uh, Chile, they supported uh, Pinochet, a murderer. We supported Salvador Allende, who was a socialist duly elected that they murdered. And you look at all of this in Haiti, Papa Doc and Baby Doc, uh, America supported. So wherever they was, the resources of a land, whether it was in the Caribbean or Latin America or Africa, America was on the wrong side as they are now on the wrong side of history. Thank you for bringing up Algeria. All right. And a tweet question for you. We'll come up on a break, and I'll read the tweet for you. I'll let you respond when we get back. Tweet, this is Sean. He says, what, do, what does he think the effects of BRICS will be on the world economy, Africa, and USA? Again, the question for you, uh, Charles Barron, what, what do you think the effects of BRICS will be on the world economy, Africa, and USA? As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and get caught up in the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities, 26 minutes away from the top of the hour. We'll be back with four minutes with Charles Barron's response. You, too, can join this conversation with Charles Barron. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. It's one minutes away from the top of the hour with New York activist uh, Charles Barron, who's a former elected official now. He's doing, still doing his thing, but doing it on the personal tip. It, as I mentioned, coming up later, we're going to speak with the founder of the Black Lawyers for Justice. That will be Malik Shabazz. He's going to give us an update on the sentencing for the Mississippi police officers convicted of, of brutalizing two black men. A horrible scene there. You, you guys remember that when Attorney Malik mentioned that. And you also had a chance to speak with those, those victims as well. Also, he's going to talk about... Uh, He's going to talk, give us a reparations update and talk about what's going on in the Middle East, the so-called Middle East, I should mention. And also, tomorrow is Friday. When, that's when we give you a chance to free your mind, think for yourself, and reach out to us on our Open Phone Friday program. We begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also on the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. 
right. Uh, Charles Barham, uh, the, the tweeter, Sean says, uh, uh, good morning. What does he think the effects of BRICS will be on the world economy, Africa and the USA? The potential of the effect of BRICS is incredibly powerful because what's plaguing Africa and what's plaguing the domestic colonies of America called black communities because we're under colonial capitalism is the colonial mode of production. Omali Yesitela of the African People's uh, Socialist Party often analyzes through his internationalism, his um, worldview of internationalism as the colonial mode of production. It is colonialism that's plaguing the world now. So what happens is the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, they fund Asian, uh, countries and, and African countries go into debt but what the IMF wants them to do is continue the colonial mode of production, meaning that they will have international corporations and Western countries continually uh, exploiting. Africa is not poor, it's exploited. So these colonial mode of production produces all of the resources in these countries for Europe, for the West and exploits the labor, sometimes free labor, slavery, and sometimes little or no pay labor. So they use this colonial mode of production, and what Brick is saying, we're going to put an end to that. What Brick is saying that we'll have regional banks. Brick is saying that we won't deal with the dollar. We won't deal with the British pound. We must deal with the French franc, but we're going to develop our own currency. This is what Muammar Gaddafi was about to continue what Kwame Nkrumah talked about, United States of Africa, having a Central African bank, having our own currency, and having regional trade with each other, and not deal with the World Bank, and not deal with the International Monetary Fund. So BRICS is headed in that direction. It would be a great asset for the liberation of our country, and of, this, of our countries in Africa, and certainly put a real dent, a real shot at imperialism and global capitalism abroad, and that's a good thing. And I just wanted to uh, tie into also the colonial mode of production is what's affecting the Middle East. Right now we say free Africa and free Palestine. So what's happening in and Palestine, as you said, the so-called Middle East, because it's not Middle East if you live in China, you're going west. That was for the World War II generals called it the Middle East. But people need to understand that the conflicts in the so-called Middle East with Israeli, the, the occupying colonial state, racist apartheid state of Israel, <laughs> it didn't start with the October 7th uh, bombing of Israel by Hamas. Matter of fact, it started 100 years ago with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 when the Jews were in England and they were fighting the English and blowing up their hotels and, and killing their officers, Tommies, with the Ergen. Malachim Begum was a part of the terrorist group called the Ergen. So uh, in 1897, um, Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, uh, was conferring with other Zionists, Heim Weissman and others, and what they did is they decided that they would take over, uh, first they said Uganda in Africa for a homeland for the Jews to come and, and, and migrate to. 
and but that was landlocked. Then they talked about Argentina, but they decided no. And then in 1917, Lord Balfour said, take Palestine, and we will protect you as long as you protect us and let us use the Suez Canal. So from that point on, the Arabs, the Palestinians were at war. And in 1947, they had what they called the Nakba. The Nakba, it's an Arab word for catastrophe. That's when the America became a superpower, and they supported the Israeli Defense Force, the terrorists, by the way, Israeli Defense Force, and they displaced over 700,000 Palestinians from their home and killed five, 6,000 others, including women and children, and they established the next year the terrorist state of Israel. Israel came into existence in 1948 by way of terrorism. And then they've been occupying and expanding and taking more land. When they got there, 90% of that land that they call Israel now was with Palestinians. And now it's 90% uh, Jews and about 5 or 10% because they pushed the Palestinians out into West Bank and the Gaza Strip and other places. So this war did not start with 1,200 Israelis being killed on October 7, 2023. As a matter of fact, in 2014, the United Nations documented that Israel killed 1,539 Palestinians and 509 of them were children. And right now, they killed over 11,000 and they say close to four or 5,000 are children. And know that hospital, first they said they had some underground uh, tunnel in the hospital. Well, they're in the hospital now, and nobody showed us no underground tunnel. Now they're showing a bunch of weapons, and, and Biden is just as bad, and Barack Obama was just as bad. He's talking all of this stuff now about there should be some Palestinian state. But I want you to know, under your black president, Barack Obama, Israel used to get $3.6 billion or $3.8 billion of arms funding from America every year. But under Barack, he made a 10-year deal for $38 billion to be given to the occupying settler state of Israel to continue their murdering of Palestinian babies. Shame on you, Barack Obama. All right, we got some folks who want to talk to you, uh, Charles. Uh, 13 away from the top there. Let's go to Florida. Ken's waiting for us on line one. Good morning, Ken. You're on with Charles Barron. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Charles, uh, Representative Meeks has sponsored a bill called the Countering the Malign Russia Activity Act in Congress. And this bill is anti-African. So has anyone in New York pulled his coat on this or spoke to him on this? And what can we do to um, get our Congress people not to support these bills that are anti-African? And the last thing is uh, the Zimbabwe Democratic Economic Recovery Act. You will find that most black congressmen support these uh, this bill that puts sanctions on Zimbabwe. I'll hang up and listen to you answer. Thank you. And thank you very much for that question. Uh, two things. One, Gregory Meeks is a neo-colonial black puppet of capitalism. 
Uh, there are forces in Queens that's trying to get him out of office. These aren't people that you can talk to and talk some sense to. These people have to be removed from office. We had in our beloved East New York another black puppet colonial uh, leaders that were put in by the Democratic Party. Uh, my wife and I, Inez Barron, we were able to put together a, a movement called Operation Power, and we took over the city council seat. We took over the uh, state assembly seat, the district leaderships, the community board. We wiped out the Democratic Party club in East New York. And what that led to is we got three political prisoners freed, uh, Herman Bell, Jalil Montague, and Seth Hayes, and we were able to have a reparations bill that's now on the governor's desk. So these folk are not people you can talk to. Gregory Meeks is a disgrace. He's a traitor to his people. And those who support the Zimbabwean uh, uh, sanctions against the Zimbabwean government, they got angry at me, or their sellouts too, but they got angry at me because as a city council member, I brought Robert Mugabe to City Hall. And they were livid because I said, you're talking all of this propaganda lies. I'm bringing the president. You ask these questions to him in his face. And, of course, they kowtowed, and he was able to handle them. I went to Zimbabwe, and I took my staff and a few other people to Zimbabwe, and we saw how the ZANO-PF movement was trying to feed their, 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 their people more. They took over the land. Most African countries after their so-called independence, they didn't take over the land. But in Zimbabwe, they took the land, they took the farms from the white farmers, and now they're taking the mines back so that they'll have true liberation and not neo-colonial flag-waving liberation where the Europeans will put black puppets in high places, but the land, the resources were still controlled by Europe, and the money and all of that's still controlled by Europe with black faces in high places. So this is what we have to do. We now have what we call the National Black Radical Political Conference. We had two so far, one last year in Pittsburgh, and, and we had one this year right in Baltimore, and we're trying to build a black radical electoral movement to get these po folk out of office. There's no conversation you can have with sellouts who are funded by Wall Street and funded by the Democratic Party because they are doing the bid of the white power structure. Come on, break, but I got a question for you because, you know, we talked about back on the continent. Uh, Saudi Arabia just invited many of the uh, continent's leaders to Riyadh, their capital, uh, have a discussion. Saudi is now going to pump some money, some of that oil money, into Africa. Is this a neo-colonial move? Do you think that we've got the Chinese there? We've, of course, the United States and the Brits and all of those other folks. And now the Saudis are coming to get their peace. How do you see it? Well, I see Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. This is what Marcus Garvey admonished us to do in 1920s and in the 1970s when he came to America. Nobody should be exploiting Africa, not Saudi Arabia, not Russia, not China, definitely not the United States and not Europe. Africa has to be for the Africans. That's why the BRIC conference is so important. That's why when we get together, if we're going to have trade relationships with other countries, it has to be on an equal footing, and it has to be on a footing where Africans are empowered to determine the dialogue and the, the, uh, the, the, the trade agreements 
for ourselves. So we don't want to be exploited by anyone. And everybody's looking at Africa because this is the richest continent in the entire world. Even when I went to, uh, years ago, I went to um, uh, Grenada, and I met with Maurice Bishop and 17 young people from Reverend Daughtry's House of the Lord Church. We supported the Grenadian Revolution. When we got there, Maurice Bishop showed me the, the nutmeg factory where he had tons of nutmeg because America told Britain not to buy his nutmeg anymore. So they not, they, if you choose a non-capitalist path for, for progress in your countries, they will try to cut you off with sanctions and, and tell other countries if you buy from Grenada or if you buy from the bauxite from Jamaica with Michael Manley, these are socialists. I'm going to cut off American aid. It's all about the colonial mode of production. So we have to be more up on it in, in here in America. I, I tell you what, so, hold, hold that thought right there because we come for another break. But I, I understand what you're saying. But sometimes the you know some of the audience, they, they've been, I wouldn't say brainwashed, but they've been indoctrinated to think that what you're saying is, is uh, fascist, what you're saying that, you know, it goes against the grain of the, it's, it's un-American or, or something like that. Whatever they think, they, they dismiss it just by using one word, socialist, socialism. And they, they've been told all their life that socialism is bad. But when you come back, though, because as I mentioned, we've got to take the break. Can you explain to those who are, who are, who are sort of on the fence and sitting and, and, and afraid of this word socialism, how, what it is, if you can define it, democratic socialism, how it works for us, for them, and not work for us then. That's probably the best way I can put it. Six minutes away from the top there with activist Charles Barron. We'll be back in four minutes, though, right here in Baltimore. After the traffic and weather update on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 at AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. Minute after the top of the hour, momentarily we speak with Attorney Malik Shabazz. But let's continue with uh, Charles Barron. And Charles, before we left for the news, traffic, and weather update, I was telling you about the word socialism. It sort of scares some people, some American people. We've been told that socialism, socialism is bad. And you mentioned uh, Grenada's bishop, and Jamaica's manly, and also you can throw in Castro, Cuba's Castro, and Venezuela now as well. And how the United States puts a squeeze, an economic squeeze on these countries. And so the people in the countries rise up and, and they say, they see, socialism is bad. It doesn't work. Can you explain how do, how do we how do we turn that around? How do we make uh, how do we get people to understand that not necessarily that democracy works for everybody the way that it's being practiced now instead of a democratic socialism, which is what you're talking about? How do we let our people know one that works for the capitalist and one that works for the non-capitalist? Then I guess that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not pushing democratic socialism. I'm pushing socialism. Period. Um, you know, because the best way to explain it to people, very simplistic, although it is a complex system and it has a lot of reading and writing that you'd have to do, there are different forms of socialism. But the best way to explain it, when I went to these countries, I've been to Venezuela, I've been to Cuba, <laughs> I've been to the Gaza Strip, I've been to countries in Africa that practice socialism, I've been to Zimbabwe. And the best way to explain it, in countries that I've gone to, health care is free. Education is free from the kindergarten to the Ph.D. Funerals 
are paid for by the state. Your birth is paid for by the state. No one is starving unless they're exploited by capitalism and fighting against counter-revolutionary movements. And if you want to really understand socialism, study Dr. Martin Luther King in his last year on earth. He was a socialist. It is interesting how Al Sharpton and all of them who are capitalists and march to Washington every year with a celebration of Dr. King, but they don't talk about his socialism, and they don't talk about the fact that Dr. King said in his last year he's not marching to Washington for photo ops like they do now and for just speeches. He is going there to help redistribute the wealth. He said there should be an economic and political redistribution of wealth, a revolution. That's how he died, a revolutionary. He was frozen in history. I have a dream in 63, but he was a radical revolutionary in 68. And that's why he was killed. And Jesus Christ, for those who believe in the black revolutionary messiah, Jesus Christ, he wasn't a capitalist. He said that it would be harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it would be for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. Jesus Christ, when the capitalists were in the temple exploiting people, he turned over the money changers' tables and said, you've turned this into a den of thieves. He was fighting against capitalism, and he was more, more comfortable and predicting socialism for the new world. Jesus was more into socialism. He certainly wasn't no capitalist. So when you think about socialism, think about African communalism, not Karl Marx and Engels in Europe. They had their little socialist class revolution and the lumpen proletariat, the proletariat, and that was for Europeans. And But when you look at Africa, the word is communalism. Communalism. Sounds familiar. Communism, communalism. That means you prioritizing the people over the individual, the collective over the individual exploitation. Socialism, social, people, capitalism, root word, capital, exploit, by any means necessary, look out the fittest, the survival of the fittest, look out for number one, to each his own, pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. That is the value system of capitalism. We are an African people. When we were in villages, in Africa, nobody had a colonial mode of production to make profit. No, when you went hunting, you hunted for food for the village. When you build homes, you build homes for the village. When you uh, sold garment, you sold up garment for the village, for everybody to have it. When you were a medicine man or woman, you did that for the village. Collectivism, collectivism, that's what socialism is about. Capitalism is about the exploitation of workers for profits. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. All right. Before I let you go, there's a convention coming up, and you said it's radical. It's got that word in there. Some of these buzzwords that our people see as a pejorative. Can you tell us when is the next conference coming up? Well, we had one already, and we're going to do another one next year. But radical just means getting to the root. See, they have made you afraid of the word revolution and radical. We don't just want to reform capitalism. Capitalism is a fatally flawed system that cannot be reformed. It has to be radically changed, dismantled. And when people say that, they think they can't do it because capitalism has convinced you of its invincibility because of its military power and economic might. And they have you believing in their value system, so you're just trying to to survive. And as long as you're trying to survive and not try to radically change, listen, no form of our oppression is permanent. It's temporary. We will win. You have to believe that. The Roman Empire... They thought that was forever. It fell. The Ottoman Empire fell. Even Russia fell, and they're reviving themselves now. And the American Empire is falling all over the world. Why do you think America went from a creditor nation to a debtor nation? It's a $33 trillion debt. It's more difficult for you to buy food now than ever before. Because of inflation, you come out cheaper eating your money than trying to buy food, and look what they do in housing. See, capitalism has what they call industrial complexes. That is that marriage between the Wall Street, the industry, and the politician, the military-industrial complex. The reason why they have all these wars, because they make money off the bloodshed of people. The education-industrial complex, trying to privatize it and charter Schools, the housing industrial complex, these developers are gentrifying our neighborhoods. You name it, it's an industrial complex. The healthcare industrial complex, our mayor of New York, who's in trouble now with the FBI, they're investigating him for how he's dealing with Turkey and money. But the bottom line is this mayor is a colonial puppet because he is going against retirees. He wants to privatize their health care into Aetna. Aetna, who who sold life insurance to the enslaver for the enslaved. We were enslaved. Aetna took our life insurance on us for the enslaver, the so-called slave master. He is privatizing public housing. He's bringing back Giuliani street crime unit so that we can go to jail and fill up another complex, the prison industrial complex. Eric Adams is a disgrace. Whatever happens to him in this investigation, let the chips fall where they may, but worse than this investigation is his policies. He's a neo-colonial black puppet. He went to Israel and took pictures with and praised Benjamin Netanyahu, the madman of the so-called Middle East, the Donald Trump of the Middle East, Hakeem right. Jeffries and, and Eric Adams love this man and love Israel more than they do Africa. All right. We're going to let you go, Charles. We're way over time, but I thank you for your thoughts. How can people follow you real quick? 
Uh, they can give me a call at 917-763-3091. 917-763-3091. And Operation Power is my organization, and we're going to do some phenomenal things in New York. All right. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for sharing all this information with us this morning. 11 minutes after the top of the hour. Attorney Malik Shabazz, good morning. Welcome back to the program, sir. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Line one, Attorney Malik. Yeah, can you all hear me? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good morning, brother Carl Nelson, and to my great uh, big brother, the Honorable Charles Barron. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I want to talk about reparations. I think uh, uh, Professor Small, we had him on the line. I think his line dropped, though. But uh, so let's get started at 11 after the top. Yeah, where are we as far as reparations is concerned? Uh, well, we're making great progress as a people and as an overall reparations movement. We're coming off of uh, a, a, a great event here last week, a national teach-in on reparations, which is sponsored by the Afro-descended nation. The over 22 national leaders in the reparations movement presented. Uh, I have great news for this program for the reparations movement in many areas that I will be sharing with you all today, as well as updates on the struggle for police brutality. So, yeah, I got good news today. All right. We love to hear good news. Professor Small, good morning. Good morning, Brother Kyle. Good morning, Brother Sebas. How you doing? All right, Bobby. Uh, Professor good, Small, good, how are you good. doing first? Let's let's check your health first, because last time we, we you had some issues, and I, I told family that so, you're on the mend. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm doing so good. It kind of scares me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know? But I still have to go through one more procedure, which will be in next week, and that should solve the problem that put me into difficulty. But I'm doing like really well. Really well. well, that's that's great to know. That's, that's very good to know. But listen, we, we, we're coming up on a break. When we come back, we get on the discussion on the way, talking about reparations, where we are with reparations. If we've defined what we want for reparations, is still the discussion. Is it money? Is, is there other things that we want or deserve or need or, or going to get? I want you guys to lay it out for us. Family, it's 13 after the top of the hour. We've got to take another break. We've got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities. If you want to join in on this conversation and find out what's the very latest reparations and speak to attorney Malik Shabazz, reach out to us or Professor James Small. Hit us up at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Twin minutes after the top of the hour. We're discussing reparations right now with Attorney Malik Shabazz and also Professor James Small. Uh, before we go back to Malik uh, and get an update on where we are as for the fight for reparations, Professor Small, for the, some of the family out there who still think we don't deserve reparations, can you uh, give them some guidelines on why we do deserve reparations and why we are going to get reparations? Yes, sir. Let, let's be very clear. We are going to get reparations. And why we deserve it? Because a crime was committed, a crime of genocide. When you enslave someone else for over 400 years, when you destroy their language system, you destroy their family lineage, you destroy...
understanding. You destroy the historical memory. And then you use terrorism and, 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 and murder and genocide to keep them from providing food, clothing, shelter, and safety for themselves and their family for hundreds of years. You force them to live in physical terror in fear of not only the state, but in fear of white people in general murdering them if they make an attempt to achieve in their life, to build a good, strong farm for themselves. Your farm would be taken away, you would be murdered. To stand up for yourself, to participate in the political process led to your murder, your home being burnt down. This isn't a one-day occasion. This isn't a bad day for somebody. This is hundreds of years of behavior on the part of the nation called the United States of America, uh, the Kingdom of Britain, which is here the first 200 years, and the white community in America uh, as a complicit and, and collaborator in this for hundreds of years. It isn't like you made a mistake and a misjudgment that lasted for a day or even three or four years. Hundreds of years. Programmatic genocide of another human group and that has to be amended and there has to be not just reparations in terms of money yes we deserve the money no one today who's saying we don't deserve genocide will go to work for nothing well we work for nothing for hundreds of years okay we want to be paid secondly we want to be repaired and we want to be restored to our land. We want to have access. I'm not going to give up America. I built it. We created it. It is ours. With the little of it that we have. But we should have restored the millions of acres of land that we were cheated out of in the last hundred years. And we should be granted the right of return to any African nation we want to, whether we want to live there as a second home or live there permanently. And right now, there's a major world reparations conference that followed on the heels of the Afro-Descendant Conference that just ended, uh, led by Dr. Zulu, and uh, here in America, there's a conference going on under the OAU auspices, or the African Union auspices in Ghana right now, with participants from around the world, the Caribbean, the United States, and all over Africa and Europe. So reparations is a real phenomenon. That's yeah, Brother Cam Howard's attending that uh, conference. We'll talk to him when he gets back. But let me go to uh, Attorney Malik, though. Attorney Malik, uh, uh, Dr. Small just mentioned about the, the conference, the two conferences that were held. Can you explain to us what happened at those conferences? Okay, what I want to, in general, in these conferences is a reflection of what's happening throughout Black America and the Black world. It's that our people are looking at our problem, and they're realizing that ultimately that reparations and self-determination is the true remedy. I'm often on here speaking about my, my legal actions and police brutality. Sometimes we talk about gentrification. Often here we're talking about the effects of white racism. What's happening in Ghana with the African Union, many of our brothers and sisters, our allies are there right now. They're fighting for reparations for Africa and for the African diaspora. Um, what's happening is, is our people are waking up with the conference in Ghana and with what was hosted by the Afro-descendant nation last week uh, and, and Georgia State University. Uh, uh, we... We're recognizing that we must fight on a common front. We must fight on a common front, and we must come together. 
Professor James Small has said that we will achieve reparations. I put one caveat on that. I believe that we will, but I believe it's going to be predicated on building a common front, a common fighting front and organizing together because we we face powerful forces. So yes, these conferences are about unity, they're about uniting organizations and ours, Afro-descended nation under the Honorable Silas Muhammad who originated this. We're in America, the reparations organizations, we're urging all of us come together as a common front and that's what's happening in Africa right now as they fight for their reparations. All right, 25 after the top of the hour. A question for both of you, and I'll start with Professor Small. Uh, many people uh, are using reparations as a litmus test for any politician, whether of stripe or party that they represent. If they don't support reparations, we shouldn't vote for them. I want to get both of your thoughts on that, starting with Professor Small. Votes are power and we should use them to our advantage. And when any elected official do not serve the interests of the persons who vote, put them in the office, that vote should be denied them and given to someone else. And I think reparations is a absolute wonderful reason to take away your vote from anyone that do not carry the message of reparations to the center of government in this country, be it state or local. Because, you know, uh, you had uh, Brother Charles Barron on earlier, and he sponsored the reparation bill that we've been struggling around in the state of New York. So it has to be struggled on all levels. And like Brother Sulu said, we have to unite all of the reparations organizations and other organizations in a united front of Afro-descendant people here in the United States of America. And I have no doubt as we begin to do that, and he needs to talk to you about the plebiscite that's at foot, that we will achieve our goal. It's not going to come overnight. We didn't get into the situation overnight. And it's not going to be a handout of dollars to people to run and squander and give back to the enemy. It's going to be a programmatic, systematic resolution to a problem that destroyed multiple African peoples that involved the loss of life of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of those people over centuries. Intercentury genocide on every level, economic, political, cultural, and physical, and we want that remedied and repaired. All right, 28 after the top. Uh, Attorney Malik, your thoughts, uh, you know, because p- people are using that and saying they're not going to vote unless you support reparations. And they and they think it's it's an anti-democratic move because they say the Republicans are straight up have told us they're not going to support reparations. They know most of the bl- black people are supporting the Democrats. And they say if the Democrats don't support reparations, don't vote. And that means that it, it's a win for the, the Republicans. How do you see it? I see it as a power equation. Uh, power concedes nothing without a demand, and therefore, uh, I don't, I don't expect any gratuitous action on behalf of the Democrats or the Republicans. The history of Black people and our struggle in this country indicate that struggle and resistance and fighting forward is the only way any progress is being made. So I'm not surprised. But I want to let our people know, as Professor James Small has stated, that the real election is not even at the ballot box. This is an election we're coming up where people don't want the two candidates. What they're really stating is that they're dissatisfied with their lives in America. 
So with the reparations organizations, we're trying to, in the Afro-descended nation, to assemble at least 200 black organizations that are fighting for reparations on a, to assemble them on a common fighting front. We're pushing for our own vote right now called a plebiscite. It's called a national vote on our national destiny and what, where, what we choose as a people. And do we choose reparations and do we choose self-determination? That's a ballot that all of, all of our organizations are working on right now. Plebiscite. I'll give out the number at a certain point. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. But again, uh, politics is a, is a, uh, it's a strength game. It's a power game. It's an organized and, uh, and and we, as a people, if we want reparations, we're going to have to move at the full political action move. Right. I, I tell me, Malik, your phone is going in and out, so if you can check that for us, we'll appreciate yeah. it. 30 yeah, after, if, yeah, your phone is going in and out on us, so if you can check that, I appreciate it. 30 minutes after the top of hour, though, if folks are just joining us. one minute. I'll have it clear. Okay. All right. Click. Please, we'll do that. Professor Small, James Small is with us, and also Attorney Malik Shabazz, and discussing reparations. Professor Small, we mentioned Charles Barron, who was on previously, and he talked about the fact that America is now a debtor nation, which we've known before we, mm-hmm. uh, we owe so much money. And decades ago, Armstrong Williams came out and says, America, he says, I'm for reparations, but the country's broke. We can't afford uh, to pay black people, but we can afford to fund wars and all that stuff. But that's another issue. But he says the country's broke. That's the reason why we, we won't get reparations. Your thoughts well, on those issues? Borrow the money, borrow money from the same people they owe. They're borrowing it to take care of Israel right now. They're borrowing to build their war machine. So go borrow it. I don't care where they get the money from. It isn't just the money. The money is an essential part of it, but it is all the other repairing that needs to be done. It is the school system itself that teaches our children in this country. It is the inclusion of our culture and history in the educational construct of the country. It is the dealing with, the, with, with correcting the housing system in our community. It is dealing with correcting the damage from redlining in our community. There is a lot of things involved in the reparations process. And the Democratic Party ought to be ashamed of themselves. Anytime black people ask for anything, they say, well, the reason, we, and we said, if you don't give us to us after we have elected you, then they said, well, if you don't vote for us, then the opposition is going to win, then fine. It couldn't be any worse than what you're doing. You're not doing anything for me, you know, except giving me lip service when it's time for election. 
and running around our community handing out flyers and, and banners. What are you doing for the black community? I see you carrying the agenda of the LGBT. I see you carrying the agenda of the immigrant community. I see you carrying the agenda of the Israeli community. I see you carrying the agenda of the Eastern European and the war that's going on there. Where is the black agenda being carried by the Democratic Party? Where is the the stopping of, of the school to the pipeline that takes our children from school to prison? It's still going on full, full force. Where is the stopping of the drugs flowing in our community? We don't own any drug farms. We don't, we're not in, coming from any of the countries bringing the drugs in our community. What are you doing? Where is the stopping of the police brutality? Because it's not in the media, it doesn't mean it is stopped. You're not doing anything to stop it. Okay? So let's, let's, let's get serious. What is the Democratic Party doing for us except giving us a few black faces on TV? All right. I tell you what, hold that thought right there, Professor Small. We've we got to take a quick break. When we come back, though, let's talk about this because, uh, you know, the polls came out and said that most Americans don't uh, don't agree, approve of giving us reparations. And then there's a whole cadre of folks who, you know, who, who are not on our side who say that they, they came from their parents came from Italy or, or, or came from Ireland or, or Germany or whatever. And they, they didn't do anything to us. So they, 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 they shouldn't be paying their taxpayers money should not go to us for reparations. I want to address you and brother Malik to address those issues as well. But as I mentioned, we got to step aside and get caught up on the latest news, traffic and weather in our different cities, 26 minutes away from the top of the hour family. If you want to join this conversation with attorney Malik Shabazz and professor small, reach out to us 800-450-7876. Those are the magic numbers. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DM. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. It's Attorney Malik Shabazz and Professor Small right now discussing reparations. And before we left for the traffic and weather and the news update, the question that I posed was the question of the fact that you've got folks who, who say their grandparents came from Greece or they came from Ireland or, or Germany, wherever. So they, they are not responsible for us deserving reparations. Why should their taxpayers' money go into the pot to pay reparations for African-Americans. That's, that's, their, that's their argument. So, Attorney Malik, when they come to us with that, what's our response? When, when immigrants who came here in the 1900s say they worked their way up, is that the question? Yeah, they worked their way up, and they never tried to keep us down. They weren't their their uh, their relatives weren't part of of slavery or Jim Crow. What do we say to them? Because that's what we were asking for reparations for what took place then. But they said, "Well, I, my folks didn't have anything to do with keeping you guys down. Why? And why my taxpayers' money now has to go into this pot to pay you? I don't think it's fair." That's what they. I've heard that argument. So give us a, a rebut. Because they because they benefited, and because every every ounce of progress that a that a, a, a immigrant made coming to America in the 1900s uh, was based on the um, progress that America made in the Industrial Revolution, which is uh, fundamentally propelled by the transatlantic slave trade and the, and the benefits that America gained from chattel slavery for uh, for over 300 years. So everything that anybody comes to America to benefit from, they're benefiting off the backs of the exploitation uh, uh, of black people. And they continue to exist by the systemic racism and oppression of black people, which puts the white on the top and the, and the black on the bottom. So um, 
respectfully to what they say, uh, you they just got here. And to other arguments, I would agree to this limited extent that we are foundational blacks here in America. We're here before everybody. And so uh, without us, they wouldn't even be coming to America to have a land of promise. Uh, and so and many times where they're coming from, countries that have, exploit, have participated, in the exploitation of African people to get England, France, Spain, or any other nations that have participated in either colonialism or the transatlantic slave trade. So, so all, all of them have benefited. All of them are in some way guilty, or, and certainly they will not bar us. Their, their objections are not a bar from our righteous claim. And, and demand for full and complete reparations. All right. Yeah. Professor Small, same question to you, but I'll throw this on as well, because, you know, some of them say uh, mm-hmm. they, they, they go, them ends, always looking for a handout, always looking for something free. You know, it, it fits the stereotype that they think about us. So your thoughts, Professor Small. I, I'm not, first thing, I'm not interested in their stereotype. A murderer don't have any credibility for me to make a judgment on their feelings. We have to be very clear. Um, you know, it would be one thing if this happened in a 10-year period or if this happened even in a 20-year period. But no, hundreds of years of intergenerational white participation as collaborators with the corporate structure and the state in the exploitation and genocide of Africa, you're all guilty. And the state, the government of the United States and the Supreme Court of the United States sanctioned, promoted uh, slavery and, and gave it its guidelines. And so when you pay your tax money to that state, that state's responsibilities to do with that tax money has to do with what that state responsibilities are. I don't have any more time to play games with white people and say, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. Jim Crow was a worse slavery or as great a slavery as were the chattel slavery with the chains on our wrists. And they full of fully participated in the state and local and white community terrorism and murder of black people by the Ku Klux Klan, the police departments. More people were killed by white-controlled police departments in America than was ever killed by the Ku Klux Klan. So when we go after the Klan, let's not forget the white people who came to America, who said they didn't have nothing to do with it, who became the policemen, who became the firemen who became the school teachers that helped carry out the intellectual genocide against our people, who became the, 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 the drug-dealing, managing corporate structure that made billions off of black entertainers, uh, and on and on. Guilty. Well, some of them are more guilty than their ancestors were. We no, need to, that's thought. why it's important to study history. It'll get rid of this white... Uh, fake out mystery that they're running around with. I don't have time for their foolishness. They're going to pay. They have no choice. You know, oh, you invaded a- Africa. Every nation state in Europe participated after the Berlin Conference in the genocide in Africa. I am an African as well as an African American. You owe me. You're going to pay me. All right. 14 away from the top there. I've got some folks who want to talk to you. Let's go first to Long Beach, California. Eric's on line three. Eric, good morning. You're on with Professor Small. You just heard an attorney Malik. Hi. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, good morning, sir. This particular, 
this particular question is first to um, Attorney Sabaz. And what what is the legal definition and the international criteria, well as the constitutional criteria for what we term reparations? I mean specifically the legal definition, the international requirement for reparations, and the constitutional requirement for reparations. And we I heard the professor mention um the Jim Crow, the Negro Code, the Black Codes. Dred Scott, the Dred Scott case in 1857 is directly tied to that, to that legal precedent. And also, uh, William, the William Dungy case of 1855, where Abraham Lincoln was his lawyer prior to him becoming a congressman, well, William Dungy refused to be called Negro. How do we say black in Spanish? Negro, Negro. So all of that is tied together. And my last my last uh, point is we having this discussion about reparations. Okay, fine. But we leaving out people that has a wealth of knowledge about this about this subject matter. And one is Taj Tariq Bay, who Professor Smalls, I'm sure know quite well. He should be on radio a part of this discussion. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and um I'll take your response. Well, let me start. First of all, I love Taj. He's my brother. But everybody can't be on radio. There's all kinds of forums from which we fight. Um, the conference that was uh, opened that the, the Afro-Descendants Nation did, everybody was invited in. Everybody can't speak at a conference. We fight where we are. Taj has been fighting all of his life. He's an extraordinary fighter. So let's get that out of the way. Okay, well, why are you not, why are you not on the radio part of this discussion you know, right now? No, but I, I, there's another thousand people that could be a part of this discussion right now. So let's not get into that foolish discussion. We are, wait a minute, brother. You're not going to play that one on me. We are here in the discussion. And, and, and there could be another 10,000 people who could be here and hold the same discussion. You should be finding a way to hold a discussion of your own on a radio show or someplace else. And then let's get Malik and come into some of the legal things. But your murderer don't establish your legal precedent for life and or the value of your life. The Dred Scott decision don't mean a damn thing to me because those who were carrying out the Dred Scott decision was the criminals. The criminal can't set the precedent for legalism. But Malik, you know what, what the structural stuff is. Okay. In the international right, me... protocol, we're not letting them off the hook. There is a world me... court that's been established. There's, there's UN precedents that have been established. Okay, let me... I appreciate you, Bob, you're correct. And listen carefully, my dear brother who calls. Okay, reparations is the making of amends for a wrong that has been done by paying money or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. Uh, for example, the Treaty of Versailles imposed heavy reparations and restrictions on Germany. Um, so in its broadest sense, my brother, as recognized by all courts, reparations is the making of whole or compensation for what has been done wrong to a people. Now, when we talk about our people, we're talking about much more than financial harm or talking much more about injuries, uh, atrocities, traumas, and uh theft and a, and a whole host of claims 
that could not possibly be solved by finances alone. My teacher, Khalid Muhammad, the Honorable Khalid Muhammad, would chastise me if I came on this radio broadcast and talked about demanding financial compensation alone. Of course we need financial compensation in the trillions, as I am taught, and as uh, uh, the New Black Panther 10-point program, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad 10-point program uh, points out. The fact that um, that we are owed land as reparations because our land was taken from us and we were taken from our land. Precious metals, uh, because the dollar is, is very weak and, and all forms of currency. Dollars and pounds would not be able to substitute for uh, precious lands and precious metals as our 10-point uh, uh, program and the Panther Party teaches. Um, my dear brother, there has been a, a tremendous amount of institutional, psychological, social, and, and, and damage that could never be uh, compensated for by finance, but we must have finance. There's a big debate about whether we should get a check or not, or whether our reparations should come in the form of institutions. Uh, I lean towards institutions with perhaps a mixed payout. Um, the, the, um, the, so my dear brother, reparations is about making us whole. It cannot be limited to just money. Uh, as Brother Ramzu Yunus pointed out in the Afro-Descendant teaching, where we had a, a whole panel of leaders that we are bringing together around this country, he stated it correct, that, uh, uh, that our reparations must include a change in our political status, that a change in our political is, is a part of our reparations struggle. We did not ask to be citizens. When we brought here, we were, our political status was changed. We have never asked to be American citizens. So a part of reparations, honestly, brother, is sovereignty, land and territory of our own, and a complete independent political status, uh, uh, which represents self-determination as the ultimate form of reparations. The independent political status in a nation of our own. I'll close on this, my dear brother. I think you said Taj. I'm trying to be, listen carefully, you know, I'm taking my daughter to school. I think you ought to be patient with me this morning. She's headed to Clark University uh, uh, after, after these years. I want to say this, that if there's a brother out here, Taj, I think you said, any person out here that is in the reparation struggle and that wants unity and that wants to be a constructive a part of a united front that the Afro-descendant nation, which is a coalition that I am a part of, uh, that you're welcome. That if you're not on this forum or wasn't on the last national teaching, there are conventions coming up in April in Washington, D.C., and, and other areas. There are teach-ins, and there's a whole host of activities. I have been commissioned by Mr. Silas Muhammad and, and working with other reparations greats and Kichi Taifa, Reginald Muhammad, others that are over in Africa right now. I've been commissioned to help to conduct or to bring 200 
black organizations or leaders together, brother. And if, and if Mr. Tash has been working hard, I want to talk to him and meet with him because my job is a unifier and an organizer. All right. Hold that thought right there, Attorney Malik. we got to take a short break. We've got to check the traffic and weather and the news in Baltimore. When we come back, Michael in Pittsburgh has a question for both of you guys. 800-450-7876. You, too, can join this conversation with Attorney Malik Shabazz and Professor Small. Reach out to us. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Good morning again, family. Two minutes after the top of the hour, our guest attorney Malik Shabazz and also Professor James Small with us. We're discussing reparations. Many of us have reached the consensus that we deserve reparations. Now we've got to figure out the next move. This is why uh, Professor Small and attorney Malik are on this morning. As I mentioned before, we left for the traffic and weather update. Michael is calling from Pittsburgh. Has a question for both of you brothers. He's on line four. Good morning, Michael. Back up on what you said, Carl. What you said about those Italians and them Irish, that, that, that they should be ashamed of themselves. They came here and they benefited from our labor, our work. 1926, they better get to teach this stuff in school. But they burnt our cities down. They burnt all our communities. Some are buried underwater. Just think if they had left us alone, we wouldn't be talking like this. But we got that white cancer. White cancer is killing us slowly but surely. And we got to teach our children, which is my question, to, the, to, to both your guests, don't you think it's don't time think that we leave a torch with our children children's fire burning about the debt they have? I hear you say reparations, but there's a debt. There's All a debt. the murder, the lynching, the hours we put in, slavery. Come on. There's a debt, and we need to teach our children to start their own party and never let up on this because that's who we let down, our children and ourselves. They need to start their own. Even if we don't win, you can at least tell the world what they've done to us. And them Italians and them Polish people, it's just so disrespectful to say that about us. All right, Michael. I will give the gist of your your comment. Uh, Professor Small or, or Malik, who wants to jump on this first? Let me jump in real quick first. What I want to say to my to my caller and those who are listening is that um, our job as leadership is to convert black dissatisfaction with not having received reparations, to convert black anger with what has happened to us, and to convert black people's universal uh desires to have reparations. Our job as leaders is to convert that into the reality of reparations. Well, I respect what my my dear brother who called has said. I I don't want to leave my daughter who I just dropped off. I don't want to leave her in the next generation simply by by making uh, a demand and and reminding America. I'm going to be embarrassed if my daughter's still reminding America long after I'm gone about what has happened without having a legacy that her dad and the leaders before her laid where she will be in the uh, 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 the completion process, as James Absolutely. Professor James Small says. Matt, sir? No, I just said okay. absolutely. I'm fully in agreement. There are children, and they deserve 
You're right. Okay. I don't want to leave my kids either that way. I'm on your side. Go okay. Ahead. I'm sorry. So this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing for you as as leadership and out of respect also for elders, elders like the Honorable Professor James Small, elders like the former Incorpor Chair uh, Ephia Wangaza. Uh, uh, I'm talking about, um, and this is shared by Incobra, President Kenneth Henry, Mr. William Lett, uh, uh, others. Where we are right now is in a, a state of uh, ex- intense organization and structure building to fight the upcoming war for reparations, okay? This will not be won by uh, – uh, 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 this won't be won by either strictly by meetings or protocols or there are going to be many meetings and protocols decided. At the Afro-descendant nation teach-in, which is uh, uh, went nationwide, it's on the it's on the uh, it's on my Facebook page. I know Malik Shabazz on Facebook, and it's on National Reparations Convention dot org. Uh, what what should be on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Afro-descendant nation, and I want y'all to remember that we're black. We're black people. There are other who say there are Moors here on the line, Hebrews. These are our cultural and spiritual titles. But legally, we have made process through the great reparations leaders. We have made process where formally Afro-descendant is the lawful name that is recognized in the international court systems and international bodies. But what I'm saying here, my brother, is that this on this national teaching that we had that is circulating online. There were entities such as Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about the strong, true Black Lives Matter leaders, Sister Melina Abdullah and others. And uh, others, I hope he's listening, Brother John Barnett, other activists. What we're saying to you, my dear brother, is that there are companies, there are corporations, there are governments that owe us. In terms, we have to become seriously organized structurally because we have to ultimately, we're going to be forced to raise the tension level, raise the level of pressure on this government, on these state legislatures, on these companies and corporations where it won't just be talk. It won't just be something that they hear on the radio or read on the news, but they are going their financial reality and their operating reality and the political reality of functioning in America will be disturbed, halted, or or put in abeyance. Meaning things are gonna to have to come to a halt as business as usual, ultimately for us to achieve this objective. And this is not a dream. The one organization I mentioned, Black Lives Matter. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. By whatever means they came about, we all can raise our hands and agree that they had a transformative effect on the police brutality movement. And what we're saying to you today is that all of you who believe in reparations, that your leadership as a collective has an obligation to build a movement that will uh, uh, help to transform the reality of us achieving reparations, whereas when you saw that power that Black Lives Matter was exercising in, in terms of the police brutality movement, the reparations movement is going to proceed to be that powerful, that strong. And I pray that Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and every other company that has its ties to the blood and the sweat and the Holocaust of my people are held accountable. So this thing is headed big, but it has to be structurally worked in such a diligent and tedious manner over the next years or so. And so, brother, you stand by, brother. I hope we won't, your sons, our sons and daughters are not going to just be crying out for it. I'm going to put my daughter in a position where she's going to have to fight for the fight that I laid the foundation for with others. All right. Professor Small, I know you want to ch- uh, chime in on this on this response. Well, I think he answered it pretty much. The only thing I would say to the brother that uh, our struggle isn't a one uh, category struggle. We have to fight on every level. Um, we have to fight, still have to fight to get voter education and voter registration. We can't complain that, um, because people we elect to office didn't do right if we haven't chosen who's going to be elected to office. So that there's work we got to do. That's just one level. Um, I know in Florida they finally woke up there that we don't have to cry about somebody teaching our children our history in the school system while we are fighting the school system to get curricula change, let's open the doors of our churches and our mosques to teach our children our history after school and on Sundays and, and Saturdays. We we can alter a lot of the things that's happening to us right now by what we do in the community we live in. If you don't, if you're not connected to a church or a mosque, get the collective friends and meet in one another's house and teach your children history, teach your children math, teach your children science. You know, their work we could do towards the greater struggle that leads to reparations as a major aspect of our struggle. It is a necessary aspect of the struggle. We cannot go into the future without having our land back. We cannot go in the future without being paid for 400 years of labor. We can't go into the future without having restored to us all of the things, whatever is necessary to restore history, whatever is necessary to restore language, whatever is necessary, and all of it could be done. And right. so Hold let's that right the there. state and America, let's get down, let's get it done, let's stop wasting time, because you're just right. putting off the inevitable. 11 after the top. Yeah, we've got some more folks who want to talk to you, uh, Professor Small and, and Attorney Malik. Christian's calling us from Malibu. He's on line three. Uh, good morning, Christian. Is Christian there on line three? 
Can you hear me? All right. Hello? Hello? Yeah, go ahead, Christian. Okay. Um, when the Italians said uh, they don't want to support black people or the reparations access, when you chose to come to the United States, you came on a boat or a plane. You elected to come to a country that was involved in state-sponsored violence. It's just like going on in Ukraine. I didn't vote for that, but yeah, they're taking my money and they're sending it over to Ukraine. So that's what happens. If you participate in relocating to a country, then you have to accept what those uh, ideologies are. The other thing is here, you can go back to the 80s when the United States government came with the Iran Contra scam and started using government money to bring drugs into the black community to finance a war along with the uh, Sandinistas and stuff. See, since we're talking about there's going to be penalties for that, and you can go back to 1776. Here's the thing. I went to one of these reparation meetings uh, in July of this year. It was about 450 people, and 99% of them were black. They shut it down. They had to regroup because they were trying to meld the discussion. You know, we're going to include school, not just people like that. No, this is a black thing. This money is going to be given to black people. When you have school lunches, that helps everybody. We want to have black people get their just due. One more thing. Governor Newsom had a committee set up. Okay, they've passed the uh, Preparations Act. He he vetoes it. He set it to the side. It's over with. So we got to say we're not voting for Newsom. Nobody's voting for Newsom. So you got to stop these people. If they're not following your agenda, we're not voting for you. Go ahead, gentlemen. Uh, I tell you what, hold hold the response because we got to take a short break. Thank you, Christian. Uh, I'll let uh, Professor Small and Attorney Malik uh, address those concerns that you made after we check the traffic and weather in our different cities. 14 minutes after the top, they. I'll be back in four minutes with their response and your phone calls. We've got folks from across the country want to speak to Professor Small and Malik Shabazz. We're discussing reparations. Reach out to us right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL for information is power. And thank you for rolling with us, family. It's 20 minutes after the top there with our guest, Attorney Malik Shabazz and Professor James Small. We're talking about reparations. We've got a bunch of folks from across the country. We've got questions for both of you. But uh, uh, Christian called in Malibu and laid out some questions and some comments. So, uh, Professor Small, do you want to take a, ch- a, a chance at uh, responding to what Christian said first? Well, obviously, I support his views. Uh, and I think... Uh, when it comes to government, Governor Newsom, uh, vote is a weapon. It is a weapon that gives us a amount of power. Use it to the best interest of our people. So, um, Christian, I, I got your back. I understand and I support your position. All right, Attorney Malik. Malik? Yeah, what, what I would like to, um, I need to give out a number if everybody's listening. And, and I want, this is something that we can do together. This number is one eight seven seven five zero six two one eight four. That's one eight seven seven five zero six two one eight four. And what I'd like to do is everybody that heard me give out that number, I want them to type type the keyword reparations into eight seven seven five zero six. Two one eight four. When you text reparations into that keyword, you have you will be asked five questions. You will take a vote for yourself. 
and you will vote on your national identity, and you will vote as to what, as to give your consent that you want reparations and what kind of reparations you're for. When you text reparations to that number, 877-506-2184, that also means when you text that number, you are in the database for the National Reparations Movement. You're in the database, and you're going to be part of us organizing, organizing with other organizations, because the bottom line to it with Governor Newsom is the Democratic Party has out-organized us. Now, they have an unfair advantage because they have lots of money, and we're in a precarious political position, boogeyman politics. So, therefore, if Governor Newsom pushes us around or disses us, discarding action on reparations, he still has the luxury of blacks in the Democratic Party in California supporting him, and if he runs for president, blacks around the country, because black people right now are saying, well, even though you don't give us reparations, well, the Republicans is going to get us, so uh, we got to vote for Joe Biden anyway, even if he say he not for reparations. That's not, that's not a good position to be in. Okay, so in, to close, even though we're out-financed by the Democratic Party, still black people have overwhelmingly said they want reparations and that they are dissatisfied with both parties. So once again, 877-506-2184. If you text that keyword, reparations, you're going to be part of the action. If you text us and tell us about yourself, and your information, we're going to follow up with you because we here, Professor Smalls and, and all of the others who I, I'm here to represent as a collective, we plan on making the reparations organized movement as a whole undeniable and unbearable to the deniers of reparations. All right, 24 after the top of the hour. We've got folks from South Carolina, Philly, Chicago, California. I want to talk to you, both of you, about reparations. Let's go to South Carolina first up. Gregory's on line five. Gregory, good morning. You're on with Attorney Malik and also Professor Small. Uh, yes, uh, good morning, Brother Carl, Attorney Malik, and uh, Dr. Smalls. Uh, one of the morning, things sir. I've always said, yes, sir. One of the things I've always said is that uh, black people in America have the best case for reparations in the history of the world. That's my personal opinion. And one mm -hmm. of the things I've read is that Attorney Johnny Cochran uh, was preparing a case, possibly a Supreme Court case, to uh, make the argument for reparations. And I want to ask uh, Attorney Malik if he's maybe continuing that work that was started by Attorney Johnny Cochran, and if maybe he might be that attorney that augurs the case for the black community to the Supreme Court. And also for Dr. Smalls, if he knows of any attorneys or the legal process for uh, gaining reparations. And if possible, another quick question after that. All right. Great, great question. Honors to the Cochran, a man whom um, I will be, I, I am honored to follow in his footsteps, and I'm honored to be a part of his legacy. The Supreme Court of the United States and all federal courts in the United States represent the federal civil 
jurisdiction and jurisprudence of America. It's civil law, and it is not um, it is not welcoming, or it is not for full and complete reparations. It's not the right venue. Okay, so this has been proven over the course of years because um, statute of limitations and other civil uh, uh, bars and affirmative defenses to civil actions have uh, have recently knocked down the Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, even the living descendants of the Tulsa massacres, which occurred in the 1900s and throughout the years. Honors to uh, all of the attorneys who are out there fighting. Attorney Nkichi Taifa, Attorney Ifia Wangaza, in his uh, posthumously, Attorney Chokwe Lumumba, to another brother who fights right now, Attorney Roger Michael yeah. Warren, and others. Okay? The legal civil processes of constitutional law in America are not going to be the remedy for full and complete reparations, although actions relating to this reparations cause and movement, I'm sure, will be attempted again in federal courts. But I cannot tell you, and I would not lie to you, and tell you that to expect a reparations remedy from the United States Supreme Court. Uh, 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 However, so that, that would not be the legal focus. I say it's black Lawyers for Justice, working with the other legal scholars and legal teams, um, that we are fully on board to fight. We're fully on board for this fight, either domestically or internationally. But I would most likely tell you that legally this fight will be most likely waged in the future on an international basis, and it will be a political fight here domestically. But there will be legal fights domestically in terms of the fights that the reparations organizers are going to be fighting for in America. There are going to be many fights inside of America legally uh, in terms of the organizers pursuing uh, uh, certain avenues of justice. Uh, so I hope that answers it, brother. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the fight. Black Lawyers for Justice is in for the fight. There are some limitations but you can expect courtroom action here and abroad. All right. Professor Small, your response? Well, just simply to put it in a simple term, the Supreme Court and the federal courts of the United States are defendants at this point. We're the complainant. They're the defendants. And so we can't expect them to render a verdict against themselves. Uh, There are some levels at which we can fight, and I think – uh, Dorothy Tillman, who led a very strong reparations uh, movement in Chicago some years back and got ordinance passed that I think in about 11 different cities around the country where <clears throat> at that local level, the, the, the city governments forced the corporations doing business with the city in order to get city contracts. They had to show their relationship to slavery and genocide against African people so that it can be established uh, the 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 culpability 
of those corporations in terms of raising the bar for uh, evidence for reparations. And I think at the local level, we can do a lot more of that. That's right. important. One good that example. In right there. That's extremely, that's a great example. Uh, uh, we got, we're talking about um, Brother Cam Howard was mentioning this at the Afro-Descendant Nation teach-in on Sunday. This is something he specializes in. Corporate corporate disclosures, as well as those that Professor James Smalls talked about, uh, 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 governmental disclosures, but in specific corporate disclosures in terms of companies being forced to uh, 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 give up and to disclose their ties to slavery. Now, this is where I anticipate many, many legal fights here in America over those disclosures and that discovery. And uh, and that's very, very important and vital to the movement here in terms of companies that are involved in slavery having to admit and give up the documents and the proof. And uh, and that's right. an area that I would expect to be fighting in. That's an area that I would expect to be legally fighting in, along with other lawyers. And and let me just show one quick example, Carl. If you take Citibank, major corporation in America, banking corporation, but its parent bank was called Canal Bank and in New Orleans, and Canal Bank's primary commodity was enslaved African peoples. Okay, so Citibank gets its parent money from enslaving African peoples. You can follow the same thread with Chase Manhattan Bank and how they got their money, how they even became established, okay? And so there isn't a corporation in America of any statute that isn't culpable, and it can be proven. Right. At the lo- I, I threw it out because at the local level, answering my brother from my home state of South Carolina, that's the level we can fight on when we're looking at the local uh, st- struggle around gathering information and data that could be used in the international courts and protocols of the world to make our case. All right, and thank you for connecting those dots because I'm sure there's a lot of, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, instances like that that can be, you know, if, if we dig deeper, we can find the connections and and, and mm-hmm. go after them. So I I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciate that. Listen, we've got to take our last look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We come back. Brian in Philly's got a question for you. I guess is Malik Shabazz, attorney Malik Shabazz, and also Professor James Small. We're talking about reparations, folks. What are your thoughts? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. It's uh, 22 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Attorney Malik Shabazz and Professor James Small discussing reparations. Before we go back there, let me just remind you, tomorrow is Friday, and we're going to give you another chance to free your mind, think for yourself, and join us for our Open Phone Friday program. We begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here in Baltimore on 1010 W-O-L-B. Also in the DMV, we're rolling on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 W-O-L. As I mentioned, Brian and has a question for you, but before we go to Brian, Real quickly, uh, the, we have uh, Georgetown University, I think Harvard and some other schools are doing some things uh, for reparations. Does this get them off the hook? Are, are they still going to be charged with the reparations for doing what they're doing right now, these colleges? McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You want to handle that, Malika? You want me to open it up? Oh, I'll just say a quick word, and I'm headed to the courthouse, so I might have to turn it to you, Professor Small. Um, I would say that um, at the Afro-Descendant Nation teach-in, we had Mr. Eric Phillips from CARICOM, which is the Caribbean organization that, that represents reparations, very strong, CARICOM. And um, they are reparations that are being paid by various entities, companies, and families to blacks in the Caribbean. There are some reparations payments being made now, and the debate the debate is around um, who they're being paid to and for what purposes and how they're being paid. So I say that to say that right now uh, Georgetown University and and there are other entities that are acknowledging their culpability in slavery, and uh, they are they are seeking to pay out remedies in in their way. Um, on one hand, this is positive encouragement. On the other hand, this beg this this begs for uh, further uh, organization and consolidation of the reparations movement so that individual defendants don't uh, uh, end up cutting side deals that are to their benefit and not the benefit of the whole. So you have a, so in other words, you have a, 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 a number of individual defendants uh, satisfying their liability in their way according to standards that may or may not be acceptable to the reparations movement as a whole. So, uh, that's what I say. I say the good things that have been yeah. done, small things, but it needs to be uh, 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 regulated. We, our movement needs to be regulated. All defendants come into the table so that the overall objectives of this revolution, of this rev- revolutionary reparations movement, will not be compromised. We cannot turn this into an affirmative, a, a alternative affirmative action movement. In this hour, we have to be strong and, and and hold everybody fully accountable. All right, Professor Small. Yes, sir, and, and I agree with that. And again, you know, I'm Mr. Simplicity. I like to put things in simple terms. Um, the criminal can't determine their culpability. We have to determine that. They can't say, "Oh, we're going to give money like Georgetown to the descendants of enslaved people that we held." and we sold. No, you are part of a larger system of exploitation and genocide. 
So the, you're not just culpable for the persons, uh, the descendants of the persons who were owned by Georgetown University and sold for profit so you could expand your university because I know that case. No, the determination of what you owe, we will make that determination in the world court. And then you will right. pay us what you owe. Got you. Uh, 18 away from the top. Yeah, Brian, thanks for being so patient. He's on line four calling from Philadelphia. Brian, good morning. You're on with Professor hey, Small morning. and Malik. Go ahead. Hey, good morning to your guests, uh, Professor Small and Attorney Malik. Again, thank you, brothers, for which I continue to have contributed <coughs> to this um, <coughs> process. Uh, my question for your guests, and Carl, I, I actually called a couple of times to remind you of this, but the black tax written by Sean Rochester. This brother has done the research and broke it down to what the trillions that is actually owed to us as a people. So my question again to you guests, have they heard of the black tax and Sean Rochester, who is, is the author of the book? And he has videos on YouTube. And if y'all haven't seen him, please check him out. And please, brother, call if you can get your, your team to get him on your show. Well, well let me wait, well, let me before they answer, I'll tell you, we we spoke to him twice and twice we had him booked and twice he, it, there was something come up and he, he couldn't make it once again, okay, quite okay, kind well, of the good. last minute. So that. we've tried. So I just want okay, you to know I that I remember Thank now. OK, Thank you. but your well, question we, again for we, again, uh, my question, yeah. you know, have they, um, you know, again, added his his research to the process of reparations? Um, and the other other question is, has anybody follow up with Dr. Claude Anderson? Because to my knowledge, he's been saying he's in, in court, you know, in D.C. right now using his own money. You know, and what are we doing? You know, what can we do to assist him and bring it all the puzzle pieces together so that our fight will be so much stronger, so much powerful to flex on this this issue that, you know, they can't deny us because we have brilliant people that, that have done the research to make this thing go, just like your guest that you have on the show right now. Okay, let me, let me, let me jump in real quick. In. Yeah, go ahead, brother Sebastian. Let me say something quick, then I got to go into this courthouse and turn it to my honorable gentleman here. Uh, please send the greetings to Dr. Claude Anderson. Could you tell him that attorney Malik Shabazz is reaching out for him? I haven't spoken to him in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But can you tell him that attorney Malik Shabazz is reaching out for him? Brother Carl Nelson has my numbers. If mm-hmm. Carl Anderson, if tell Dr. Anderson, if he needs my assistance, I'm here to help him. Okay, I'm 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 here in his area right now. He's got some some legal things. My time is very booked, but for Dr. Claude Anderson, please send him the greetings. Okay, I need I'll, I'll be there for him. So I want to say to everybody, as I as I turn the line over again, the number that I want y'all to to to, to contact is eight seven seven. Sorry about this noise here, the courthouse. Eight seven seven oh one seven. I'm sorry. Eight seven seven five zero six two one eight four. Eight seven seven five zero six two one eight four. Text reparations in there and then answer the questions. And that will cast your vote and register you with the National Reparations Movement. Also, text that number. We want everybody to become a member of an organization that's fighting for reparations. You must become a member of some organization that's fighting for reparations, and we'll help you to do that. 
Okay, so I got to go in the courthouse, but from, on behalf of Black Lawyers for Justice, uh, I want to thank Brother Carl Nelson, James Small. I want to let you all know that the struggle for police brutality continues, that the sentence will come back later, but the sentencing for the goon squad, the abusers of Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker, has been pushed back to January 15th. When I come back, I'll talk about the struggle to oust Brian Bailey, the struggle in Mississippi, uh, uh, the struggle for black respect and everything in, in the police brutality struggle. And I also want to say that all police brutality is rooted in chattel slavery and all police Absolutely. brutality, uh, all police brutality movement members must come into the to the reparations movement because reparations is the and political independence is the cure to police brutality. I love you, brothers. I got to run in this courthouse. I honor you. All right, handle yes, your business, and Professor Small. You want to respond to uh, Brian's question? Oh yes, the the people who have been looking at the tag, and I don't think there's anyone uh, in the process now that I know who haven't been reading Dr. Anderson's work and bringing it to the table. And I do agree. I was talking to George Tillman yesterday, and we were talking about Dr. Anderson, so I, too, will be reaching out to him to see what assistance I can give him with health issues and other things. And anything that Dr. Anderson needs, because he deserves any help we can give him. And there are others. You know, there's a moral and legal basis for the demands for $36 trillion in reparation, and that's my brother Quajo. Ani Obang, and he published those documents about five years ago. So we've been looking at all of this material to try to put the case together. But as uh, 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 Brother Shabazz said, he's given the number. So anyone that wants to be, because we don't know everyone, anyone that wants to be involved in this process should call that number because we are trying to pull as many of our organizations and individuals together, scholars and otherwise to continue this process. All right, let's keep rolling and racing the clock. 12 away from the top of the hour. Jason's on line six, calling from Chicago. Jason, good morning. You're on with Professor Small. Uh, uh, good, good morning. I'm actually calling from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, good morning. Um, good morning. Just so, much respect, just so much respect for the work that uh, both of you gentlemen are doing for the community. Um, I represent a candidate that's running for mayor in Baltimore City that actually is, has a blueprint for reparations. Um, I think the time is now, and if we don't do it now, the problem is, is that we have so many transient people coming into cities like Baltimore, uh, Baltimore being a sanctuary city. We have so many folks that are coming in that don't have an understanding of the legacy residents that have their intergenerational wealth stolen from them, especially a ref- reference to housing, economic development, business development, um, uh, securing of neighborhoods. Uh, for black and brown people. So I don't think that we understand uh, uh, the dynamics that's happening right now, especially with these transient folks coming in. And and, and what's interesting is that in a lot of cities, they are talking about reparations, but in many cases, there's an issue in reference to money sources. And we do have a blueprint in reference to how we go after the money sources. But it's interesting that some cities are going after marijuana money. Some cities are going after gambling money to use that as opposed to just understanding 
that the government owes the money regardless to where it comes from. You could try to generate a new source all you want to. It's still something that's owed at the local level, the state level, the federal level, and even with corporate businesses that have benefited off of uh, 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 a lot of the uh, crimes that have been committed to black and brown people, especially in industrial and manufacturing cities. There's a white guy that has a video. Jason, do us a favor. Right Can you put in a question for him? Because we're racing the clock it, it, and we still got some folks. Yeah. This is it Go right ahead. here. The, the, so there's okay. a white guy that has a video online that talks about reparations. And he says, you know, that most folks, you know, say that we're going to go buy Cadillacs. We're going to go buy hair. We're going to do whatever we want to do with the money. It's going to be something not beneficial. He said, who cares what we do with the money? Who cares what we do with the money? Because this is a check that's owed. Do you not agree with the points that I just made that we have to act now because many of these cities that have these crimes are starting to be diverse and starting to have transient people in? And do you agree that this is money that's owed? Well, well, I think we've already made that clear. We know that it's money that's owed. Acting now can be relative because you can't go into court without having your case tight. Um, what we need to, and as far as sanctuary cities, you also fight to 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 get rid of sanctuary city status because it was a trick, it was a hustle, it was a game, and the losers in all sanctuary city situations have been the African American population. I'm not into the black and brown people thing. I'm not the black and brown people. I'm the African American, and we want to make that clear. And in our largest sense, we are the Africa Afro descendant nation, which is recognized by all international protocols. We have to be clear and stop letting people re-identifying us to become a part of their effort to dilute our efforts. And, 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 and labeling racially is one of the ways of doing that. I don't call myself black and brown people. I'm African-American. Some specifically was done to me doing slavery in the United States of America. I, I, don't, I can't share that with anybody else. i got to deal right. with my Thanks. history. You know. Thanks, Professor. Thanks, Jason. We've got some more folks who want to talk to you real quick. Uh, Mama Tradition's calling from California on line three. Mama Tradition, can you make it quick for us? Is Mama Tradition there on line three? Uh, yes. Can you hear me, Carl? Sure. Make it real quick. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, Malik a question, but he's gone. So, Dr. Small, can you help me yes. with this question about the teachings of our children? This is where it has to start. Our children don't have any regards for the land. A lot of our ancestors left land in the South, and a lot of these children are just letting these white people take the land, and what they're doing down South is building a lot of chicken poultry plants, and that's where they're putting them all to work. Now, 40, and 50, and 60 years ago, our ancestors were farming, growing food, growing cotton, growing corn, potatoes. They were feeding the people. And they have disenfranchised that as a business and as a reality for our people, and they're just throwing the land out with the dirty dishwater. Is there any way we can well, teach that to our children? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, can you do that? Can you respond in like 60 seconds, Professor Small? Yeah. The, 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 we have to teach our children. There's some things we've got to take responsibility for. I'm from South Carolina. My family have land, and we've organized, and we've created corporations to hold on to our land. And so we have to fight and teach and instruct our own children. Our enemy is not going to instruct our children on how to hold on to our land. That's our responsibility, and All we right. need to be on top of it. We got closing right there. We just flat out of time. Sorry for the folks who didn't get a chance to call in and, you know, get to talk to you, uh, both you and Malik, you know, but uh, I guess next time. And you guys got to call early. Don't wait to the last yes, minute. Yes. There's a bunch of folks that left. Professor Small, thank you. Thank you for sharing all this information with us this morning. Well, real quickly, somebody called wanted to know how's Dr. J doing. 
That is doing fine. I'm going to try to get over to see him between now and the weekend. Tell him we love him, we miss him. I will, absolutely. All righty, that's Professor James Small. Stay strong, uh, Professor Small. All right, folks, we got to run. We're late. Stay strong, stay positive, please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.